Maniacs, welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Dave, and I am sitting here looking at my phone so I can remember to give you the proper handles uh, for the accounts for the all-new Audible Interlude, a G.I. Joe podcast. That will be officially premiering in July, but the Zero Mission is coming out Monday, June 29th. So, go get ye right now to Twitter and follow at G.I. Joe Audible. That's the Audible Interlude Podcast on Twitter. And then head over to Instagram, and you're going to want to follow... Audible Interlude Podcast. Now, if you follow Phantom Troublemaker and Needless Things Podcast on Instagram, which you should, you know I try and keep the content varied a little bit. I do repost things when it makes sense to do that. But each each account has things that the other account does not. So I try to vary it up as much as possible. And the Audible Interlude Podcasts, that's at G.I. Joe Audible on Twitter and Audible Interlude Podcast on Instagram. Uh, those will be specifically G.I. Joe. All G.I. Joe, all the time, all related to this new monthly podcast that is launching as part of the Needless Things Podcast family. And like I said, our zero mission or Mission Zero, I can't remember which way, I think it's Mission Zero, will be available wherever you get your podcasts, uh, on the Needless Things channel or stream or whatever it's called, I guess. Uh, like if you're already subscribed to Needless Things, this will show up in your, your feed, however that works. Uh, this Monday, first episode, where I sit down, with my fellow hosts, Noel and Christian, and we review the new G.I. Joe website from Hasbro. We had a lot of fun doing it. I thought uh, it was one of the first things I wanted to do. I thought it would be a nice little... Uh, well, it wasn't one of the first things I wanted to do. As soon as I saw the website, the first thing I wanted to do was talk to the guys about it. Uh, so we did. We sat down. We recorded it. And it's a little taste of you know if you've been listening to the GI Joe episodes here lately you know the chemistry we have you know the enthusiasm for GI Joe that we have uh and i just thought it would be great as a little sample of what you're going to be getting but audible interlude is a very different podcast from anything else that i have done uh i have taken basically everything that i've learned about podcasting and am using all of that to make a G.I. Joe podcast. I want it to be tight and entertaining and fun every month. And it will be, I think, if our July episode is able to launch on time, I believe it will be the first 
uh, Monday of every month, but we're waiting for some resources to come together, and I'm not going to launch it until it's ready, because that's how important this is to me. I, I want it to be exactly what we want it to be. Uh, so anyway, Audible Interlude, a G.I. Joe podcast. Check it out on the social media. Please do share about it. Uh, do whatever you can to spread the word. I'm very excited. Christian's very excited. Noel's very excited. This is going to be something different. And the first episode is already, uh, aside from, like I said, we're missing some assets right now, but the the bulk of the first episode is already in the can. It just needs to be produced. And it's great, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. Uh, but that's enough of that. Let's move on. Oh, no, wait. I can't move on to news yet because I also have to mention, speaking of G.I. Joe, head over to the Needless Things YouTube channel where I, this week, unboxed all of the first wave of G.I. Joe classified figures except for Snake Eyes. I didn't bother with Snake Eyes because I already have the big box set exclusive Snake Eyes that they did. Uh, I will buy a Snake Eyes in the store when I find one, but I haven't been on top of hunting one down like I was with the other figures. So that is the entire first wave, except Snake Eyes, who was reviewed on a minicast episode and, and quite frankly was a little subpar, but I think the single-carded release, the, the regular retail release, is going to be a lot more satisfying than than that one was, uh, which is a weird thing to say, but it kind of makes sense, and I'll, I'll get into that once I do get my hands on one of those. But go over to the Needless Things YouTube channel, check out those unboxings, uh, like, subscribe, share, do all of the stuff you know you're supposed to do when somebody is giving you content absolutely free, uh, because I will not be returning to Patreon ever, because it just isn't my bag baby all right so now it is time for some news okay to be totally completely 100 percent honest with you guys i'm not sure this is all qualifying as news but some of it is so let's take a look as a matter of fact i'm going to open up with some breaking news super seven just slid into my emails with the third wave of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Ultimates. I don't know how much I've talked about these on the show, because when the, when the first wave was offered, I, I knew I needed to resist. I wanted to resist. I didn't want to order these figures. And then the second wave came out, and Mutagen Man was part of the second wave, and I knew I was in trouble. And eventually, I did pre-order both of those waves, um from Big Bad Toy Store, not from Super 7, because it was too, the, the pre-orders had already closed at that point, but they were the same price from Big Bad Toy Store, and I would imagine they will get them very shortly after Super 7 receives them, which, by the way, is going to be very, very soon now, because today, as I record this, they are being put on the boat to be brought over here. Uh, so in a matter of weeks... The customers who pre-ordered from Super 7 should have that first wave of Turtles. These are updates of the original toys. They're not based on the cartoon. They're not based on movies. They're not based on any media. They are based on the original toys. Very much like Masters of the Universe classics were based on you know the original He-Man figures while incorporating other elements these are strictly updates of those toys that I was so addicted to in the late 80s early 90s 
So this third wave consists, each wave so far has had one turtle and then some companion characters. This wave is the long-awaited Michelangelo, who looks, they, all the turtles have looked amazing so far. Uh, the only concern I have about Michelangelo is his nunchucks need to be on actual chains and not just straight pieces of plastic. Now, I don't care about the ones that are on the sprue. Uh, if you don't know, the sprue is the plastic frame that all of the weapons were mounted on in the original Ninja Turtles figures. You had to snap them off uh, or, or cut them off with your trusty fingernail clipper or whatever. Uh, so these ultimates come with the sprue, old school style, but also separate painted versions of all of the weapons. And I really need Michelangelo's nunchucks, the, the nice painted ones, to be on a real chain and not just a stiff piece of plastic. And I, I feel like Super 7's probably going to deliver on that. Uh, time will tell. But he's got all the cool accessories, the, the knife and like everything the original figure came with. He comes with and more, including an extra head, a turtle grappling hook, a pizza box with a slice of pizza, extra hands. Uh, just amazing. Uh, and then we have a villain, Rocksteady, huge gray rhinoceros, looks like the original figure in the best way possible with his manhole cover and his laser rifle and some grenades and a knife, uh, just looks awesome and menacing. Uh, I cannot wait to see these in person. And then April O'Neil, who is absolutely a must-have, and you got to remember, when you look at this April O'Neil, this is not meant to be the April from the cartoon. This is not meant to be anything but a toyetic update of the original April O'Neil figure. That's why she looks the way she looks. She doesn't look like she looks like a, a toy, essentially. I think it's great. Uh, they did a really good job with her jumpsuit. Uh, all of her proportions look good. And then she comes with the video camera with the gun inside just like the original figure and then a ton of other stuff uh and then the final figure of this wave is metalhead which is kind of crazy considering naka is putting out their cartoon metalhead but granted this one's probably not going to come out for two more years but uh looks awesome he's got his vac metal front shell well it's either it's got to be vac metal. It's either vac metal or a highly, highly, highly shiny metallic, metallic, uh, metallic, metallic paint. Uh, I think it's vac metal though. But whatever the case, it looks like it should look. I love it. It looks great. Uh, it looks like he has the light piping on the top of his head. He's got his backpack with the radar dish. He's got his robo chucks that plug into his arm. Uh, he's got this crazy hand with a little. Uh, like tentacle that comes out of the finger which is a little creepy but is uh something that makes sense for metalhead i don't know this i'm pre-ordering this wave directly from super seven uh, i'm not going through the middleman this time because i'm committed now i'm buying this entire line i've got to have them i love them i love those turtles toys uh and i want updates i want these on my shelves i cannot wait to get them in person uh, okay, so that was uh, surprise news number one. Number two is Mattel makes good on a boo-boo. Uh, head over to the Needless Things YouTube channel, as I've already mentioned, and I 
uncased, I didn't unbox them all, but I uncased Wave 77 of the WWE Elite Action Figures from Mattel. Uh, It's a great wave. I ended up being really, really happy with every single one of the figures. But the Rick Rude figure came packaged wearing his robe, and the dyes in the robe stained basically all of the figures. Like, this is across the board. Everybody online who's received this figure, because they they haven't hit regular retail yet. I got mine from Ringside Collectibles, Uh, so it's the first batch. Um or actually, this I take it back. This is technically the second batch because the first batch of uh, the fiend had brown hair, and they corrected that to his lighter colored blonde hair, which is the figure I've got. So the first two batches of Rick Rude's are all stained. They're at the very least their elbows, uh, biceps, or I'm sorry, triceps, and forearms have black stains that do not come out. They are soaked into the plastic. Um, and then some of them, because there are two different versions of Rick Rude, one of them has yellow tights with the Intercontinental Championship, the other one has the Ultimate Warrior's face on the front. Uh, the yellow tights in particular were stained. My tights are fine, but my figure is stained. And I put pictures up on Twitter when I was referencing the fact that I'd done the video encasing, which you should watch, it's fun, because I actually do open up my Rude to find out if he's stained. Uh, so I put the pictures up on Twitter, and Mattel actually contacted me and said, we hate to see that. Can you tell us uh, what assortment it is, where you got it, what the original price was, and then take a picture of the bottom of the feet, because the bottom of the feet have like retail codes or something on them, whatever they are. Uh, so I did all that, and Mattel said, uh, we're, we're so sorry about this. Unfortunately, this is part of an assortment, so we cannot send you a replacement, but what we will do is refund your money. And the other day, I got a check, and this took, this is in the space of under five days, like maybe as soon as three days. I got a check from Mattel for twenty six ninety one, which I averaged out the cost per figure, uh, including shipping, that I paid to ringside for this case of figures. And uh and I'll tell you right now, look, you made the twenty six ninety one, why are you paying that? They're twenty dollars in stores. Well, guess what? Paying an extra six ninety one a piece gets them to me like three months early and I don't have to go crazy going to store after store after store after store, particularly in the conditions that we're in right now where you shouldn't even be leaving the house if you don't have to. And please, everybody, wear your masks. Keep wearing your masks. This thing is still happening. It's still bad. Cases are spiking and going up. Be responsible. Watch out for your family, your friends, your coworkers. Wear your masks for goodness sake. Seriously. It's not that hard. It's not that big an inconvenience. And don't go, look, I know restaurants are struggling. I know businesses are struggling. But this is about, like, health and life. Uh, You do not need to go to Po Folks uh, to have a meal with your family right now. You just don't. Because you're being careless with the health of everyone you know. That's, I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent. Anyway... Getting this stuff from ringside to me, that extra six ninety one a figure is a hundred percent worth it. Uh, so, there it's, it is worth my time, my stress, my driving around, the fact that I get them as early as I do. I, it's it's the best. Uh, so anyway, I got the check from Mattel. Mattel champions as much shit as I've given Mattel over the years. This is amazingly classy and far and above and beyond what uh, many toy companies would do. Speaking of, 
So Father's Day was this past Sunday, and my wife pretty much nailed it this year. Got a couple of cool things. Uh, She got me gift certificates to Super 7, which unfortunately I don't think I can use to pre-order these turtles, but that's okay. Uh, And a gift certificate to the NECA, excuse me, NECA. It's going to take me a long time to stop saying NECA. The NECA web store, which has nothing. The NECA web store is basically a non-entity. You can pre-order two $400 Child's Play dolls there. Uh, They have the SOD figure, which I've already got. And other than that, it's basically barren. Like, it's it's not even really a retail site. They use it for their Comic-Con exclusives, which I'm, I'm hoping this is how this is going to work out. But anyway, she got me a $25 gift certificate to a website that has nothing. I sent NECA a message saying, look, you know, she didn't know any, like, she thought she was just getting me a cool NECA gift certificate, not realizing that you guys don't sell stuff in your web store. And... Uh, you know, we got to do something about this because I mean, you know, you know, you don't sell stuff on that store. And they said, "Sorry, they're non-refundable." And that was it. It was done. I said, "That's not acceptable." Uh, this is email communication back and forth. I said, "This is not acceptable. You have basically tricked somebody and stolen money because you know there is nothing in that store to spend twenty-five bucks on. Like it is ridiculous. You're not Big Bad Toy Store. You're not Hot Topic. Like it, it's none of those things." Uh, and, and again, nope, sorry. Oh, and then the next email I got, I take it back. The next email I got was like a form email about how busy they are because of the coronavirus. So I was pretty disgusted with that. And look, I'm, I'm not going to stop buying NECA stuff. That would be a ridiculous proclamation to make. I know better than that. They, they make so much cool stuff that I love and I want to have. I'm just really pissed off about this, what I see as taking advantage of somebody who you know shouldn't have been taken advantage of who was trying to do something really cool and because they're shifty uh you know i i just i don't like this i don't care for this situation so today speaking of neca's cool products the casey jones and Raphael in disguise two-pack from the 1990 teenage mutant ninja turtles movie went up for pre-order on walmart.com it was a bit of a trial, although I've got to say, two big pre-orders went up this week. The first one was Mr. T on, I think it was Monday from, yeah, it was, it was Monday from Entertainment Earth. Like last year, the WWE Elite Slim Jim Macho Man Randy Savage went up for sale on Entertainment Earth, and it was a it was a nightmare, but I got two. This year, Mr. T went up, and I had no trouble. Like, the the site was slow, but, like, it never booted me. I never had to re-sign in. It never rejected my form of payment or anything like that. Uh, I, in, in maybe four minutes, I think I had my Mr. T ordered. Which, by the way, they were limiting it to one per customer. So that was great. And also, if you missed out on that Mr. T, it will be offered on Mattel's website that's launching in July uh, Mattel Creative Creator or something like that. It's basically HasLab, but Mattel, but also a little bit of Maddie Collector, but obviously they don't want to call it Maddie Collector because of the, the, the undeservedly sour taste that was left in some people's mouths because of that. And look, I bitched about Maddie Collector a lot, more than I should have, 
didn't deserve it. There were problems, but we probably overreacted a lot. Anyway, Mattel is launching a new website, and they're going to sell that Mr. T there, so keep an eye out for that. Follow Needless Things on all the social medias. Join the Needless Things podcast Facebook group to have all of this information as soon as it's possible. Uh, And then the other one was this Raphael and Casey Jones pre-order that I have to have. This is the one collection that I will be... You know, aside from, like, really weird... Like, they're redoing the Turtles, and they come with, like, an extra headband or a different... Something very slightly different. I won't get those, but I have to have every character they make and every significantly different variant they make. I have to. I, I that's This line is that to me. That's how big this movie is to me. So, I get on Walmart's website. They said it was going to be up sometime before 1 p.m. So, I get to work at 5 a.m., and at that point, I sign into Walmart's website... I get that link page up, and I'm just refreshing every so often throughout the day. Uh, I hit on it, and it sort of stutters, and I'm like, oh, is this it? Is this it? I get on the uh, NECA Instagram account, and I see comments start coming in. Can't buy it, can't buy it, can't buy it. And then I think somebody from NECA said keep refreshing or something. So I kept refreshing, and then finally was able to add it to my cart. Check out, no problem. Done. Got one. I probably should have ordered two, but I just got one. Uh, you could you could get two. Well, then I thought, hey, wait, what if it's up on, or maybe somebody might have even said it's up on NECA's website. So I went to NECA's website. Sure enough, there it is. Holy cow, you got to be kidding me. All right, well, now I can use my $25 gift certificate to go towards that, and then I'll either have two of them or cancel the Walmart order or whatever, but now I can order it from NECA. I can use that $25 and be good. Put it in the cart. Went to check out. Uh, this item cannot be shipped to this address. What? So I put in my parents' address. This item cannot be shipped to this address. Uh, what? Are you kidding me? You finally have something up on the website that I'm willing to purchase, willing to use this gift certificate that you scammed out of my poor wife, and you won't sell it to me? Well, I, I, sent it, I took a screenshot of their message, I emailed it to their customer service, and within, seriously, within like two minutes, it blew me away, within like two minutes got a response, this is for international customers only, on from our website, you can go buy it from Walmart, and like, honestly, I can't even be mad at that, because inter- international customers get dicked so bad all the time by exclusives and you know this that and the other that just doesn't get beyond our borders for whatever reason and the fact that NECA's taking care of those guys like I can't be mad about that so I and I actually sent an email back I said you know what I think that's great that you guys are offering that I'm still mad about the gift certificate but good on you for taking care of the international collectors so eh, what are you gonna do you guys you know, I, I love NECA as a company, and I've had some bad experience with experiences with them over the years, as far as quality control and, and a few other things. Uh, but they make the coolest products. So what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? All right. Well, that wasn't really news. There was some news. The Super Seven stuff was news, and the uh, the fact that there are two exclusives out that you can't buy anymore are news. Although you will be able to buy Mister T again uh, sometime in July. And the way that NECA is speaking of the two-pack, Raphael and Casey Jones, I think 
you have a better chance of finding that in Walmart than you might think you have. Uh, some stores have them this week. They should be hitting chain-wide next week. And it just, I don't know, something about the, the statements and the way they said them or printed them, whatever. I don't know. I feel like maybe there's a good chance of getting this one. We'll, we'll find out, and I will keep you updated. And like I said, follow Needless Things on all the social medias uh, for all of the most important pop culture news. And now that the news is in the bag, it's time to get to the episode. You may be wondering, Dave, you've been talking for this long and you haven't even told us what today's episode is about. Well, don't be ridiculous. Of course, you saw the title of the episode when you loaded it up. Uh, this episode is our annual look at 30 years in the past. We take a look at 1990. Now... Similarly to how Batman was disqualified last year because we had so much Batman coverage outside of the 1989 episode, which, by the way, you should go listen to if you haven't, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was disqualified from this episode because we have covered Ninja Turtles fairly well. Uh, but there's plenty of other awesome stuff from 1990 that myself, Rad Ranger, Beth, and Chris DePatrillo from Figures Toy Company talk about it's a lot of fun you're probably going to end up jumping on ebay and spending some money or maybe uh you know streaming a few things that you hadn't thought of in a little while whatever the case may be sit back grab a uh, uh, jolt jolt yeah i don't think surge was surge was like post high school for me like 95 or 96 so maybe jolt was around in 90 i don't know maybe you just want a dr pepper nobody's judging you you, you grab whatever soda you prefer. You want an RC Cola and a Moon Pie? You go right ahead. But whatever you do, be sure and enjoy 1990 right here on the Needless Things Podcast. Phantomaniacs, I am both excited and a little stressed out because it is time once again for our annual flashback episode where we look 30 years in the past at what was hot in pop culture uh, this year in 1990. And the reason I'm a little stressed is because there's so much good stuff, it's ridiculous. Uh, but we're going to nail down some of the best and here to help me do it, first of all, welcome back to the show, our pal, our friend, our technical expert, Mr. Rad Ranger, Sean Reed. Hey, everybody. How's it going? It's it's going, we'll see how it's going. This is going to be, <laughs> this episode is going to be fraught with heartbreak, I think. Yeah, there's going to be probably some tugs of war. Is that how you say, what's the plural for tug of war? I have tugs no idea. Of but war. I think that's right. That sounds yeah, right. Tugs of war for certain properties. War tugs. War tugs. <laughs> Hashtag war tugs. <laughs> uh, also joining us, uh, our our recent guest, Mister Chris DePatrillo, is back again already. That's it. Back for another retrospective, which, uh, as we were talking before we got on air, makes me feel a little WTF that it's been thirty years since all this stuff happened. And it's crazy because, like. Some of the stuff, did, did you guys find as you were going through looking for 
for items, some of the stuff seems really, like, older in a way, but some of the stuff, it just doesn't seem possible it's 30 years old. Yes. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it was a weird mix. And, of course, our, our final guest, uh, the one of the hosts of the Execute Chapter 66 podcast. Welcome back, Beth. Well, hello. Thanks for having me on again. All right. We we just we got to do this. There's nothing to it but to start. Uh, we're going to go through like we always do, and we're going to pick a few of our favorite things from 1990. And uh, towards the end, we'll pick some stuff that maybe we don't love quite so much. Uh, but I'm going to kick it off. I already told you guys in the group chat I have to start because I cannot lose my first pick. <laughs> and I know for a fact it would have been one of Beth's picks. So, I knew you were going to take it. Yeah, well, yeah, and that, see, that's that's how well, that's what happens when you know somebody for over 20 years. Uh, I, I have to pick something. Why, why is, ooh, I don't think why is the world in love again is the best way to start this. Um, <laughs> maybe play your racist friend would be a better way uh, to, to kick this one off. 1990, They Might Be Giants album Flood came out. Now, normally... I try and stick with stuff that I discovered in the year that it happened. Uh, I tend to try and do it that way, but this is just too big. This is the album that made me a They Might Be Giants fan. And how I discovered it was actually on a Jake Johansson HBO comedy special that came out in 1991. Uh, He played uh, We Want to Rock over the credits of the special, and I was just, I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, what is this sound? I've never heard any music like this. This is bizarre. What do they sing? Prosthetic foreheads? What? <laughs> what is happening? And I actually sat and watched the credits to find out who performed this insane song. And uh, the next day got my mom to take me to the local music store, and I can't remember if it was Music Drome yet or not, but it was uh, either Music Drome or whatever it was called before Music Drome, and bought the CD of They Might Be Giants Flood that, I mean, that was it. I was a lifelong fan from that point on. The album is still absolutely incredible. Uh it's every song on it is some weird memorable chunk of of like they might be giants history uh it's it's such a weird variety of songs and i I was thinking about this earlier today about how much i enjoy bands that jump back and forth between different genres of music and i honestly think that comes from uh being a weird al fan at such a young age and his albums featured like every genre you could think of all together in the same place. And I think that's what gave me the taste to enjoy such musically diverse bands. But they might be giants of the best of the best. I think I personally think they are the greatest band to ever exist. Uh, and this album is just a great... It's It was their big one. It was their big breakthrough album. They had had some success prior to that with like college radio and stuff. But obviously Birdhouse and Your Soul... Uh, was massive, and then you know they went on to have the videos on Tiny Toon Adventures and have had massive success since then. But I had the good fortune a few years ago, and I, I bet you were there for the when they did Flood in its entirety, right? Yes, I was at Variety Playhouse, which is the first place I ever saw them perform in 1992. But 
it's it's I love it. I love it. I can't, there are not enough words to talk about this album for me and how it changed who I was as a fan of music. Uh, how, where are you guys on They Might Be Giants or this album specifically? Obviously, Beth, you've got some things to say about it. <laughs> well, this, like, I, like you said, this was going to be on my list, but then I said, you know, Dave's even a bigger fan than I am. He's going to take it. Well, I, just, I, don't, I'm not I don't even, know about that. I'm not even going to fight about it, but... I remember when Flood came out, I was already listening to They Might Be Giants. I'd already had Lincoln by that point, so I knew when Flood... You're older than me. Oh, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot for that. I'm, what, three years older than you? Shut your mouth. Is it even that much? I don't know. I don't think so. Probably not, but shut your mouth. (laughs) I had been looking forward to Flood coming out because I'd actually discovered They Might Be Giants from I think it was TBS used to start their afternoon cartoons by playing Mr. Me. Yes, you no it yeah. was uh it wasn't TBS, it was Channel 36, whatever that yeah, was. Yeah, that's that's right. Yes. I knew it was one of those, but I remember that. And it blew that. my mind when I got uh which one was cuz now I've got that collection that's the first two albums. I don't remember what's on what. Oh. That uh, that one was on Lincoln. Okay, that's when I got Lincoln for the first time, and that played. I was like, "What the fuck? This is the cartoon <laughs> advertisement song." <laughs> but I also had friends at that time who liked them too. My friend Rob got me into them, so I was already a fan. And this really is their best album. That's why I was so excited to go to that show where they played the entirety of it, including it's just minimum so wage. Good. Including minimum wage, which I did not know that they'd be able to pull off, but they did. <laughs> I didn't even know what minimum wage exactly meant when I was 14. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> oh, I was 16. Okay, so there you go. I'm two years older than you. Shut your mouth. Ancient. <laughs> uh, Sean, Chris, what about you guys? Any, any They Might Be Giants love, or do they annoy you? Uh, neither for me. Uh, not that I uh, hate them or love them. Either way, they've always just been kind of there. Um, I wouldn't call myself a fan. They just kind of exist, and I'm aware of certain things. Mm-hmm. But my uh, my entry into knowing who they were was due to uh, two animated sequences, uh, one Tiny Toon Adventures, and then they played the uh, Istanbul cover on Liquid Television at one point on MTV. Oh, wow. And right. that was like the first song that I knew of them. And uh, in recent years, the most I had heard them was when Zach was younger and watching Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Yes, hot dog for that show. <laughs> yeah, they've they've got that interesting Disney connection now. They've actually recorded a ton of of music. I mean, they've got three children's out. Al- well, three family albums, I guess you'd call them now. Um. And have done a lot of work with Disney, so they, I mean they're they're set. They they can make yeah, their wacky music okay. forever. What do you not get? I was saying they're they're doing okay. When you've got a Disney connection, you're you're doing all right. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're probably not worrying about much at all. <laughs> what about you, Sean? Uh, I'm a fan. I don't. I can't claim to have any of their albums, although Jen does. But we will frequently find excuses to work lines from "Birdhouse in Your Soul" into just random conversations with each other. So um, they are not a, a dominant presence in the house, but they are a regular, recurring presence. Uh, 
Well, and that's that's what's interesting is like it it seems like people our age, like the world at large, even if they don't even know who they might be giants are, know that they're a band or whatever, they know Istanbul, they know Particle Man, they know Birdhouse in Your Soul, like everybody knows those songs. They just do. Yeah, they came out with I mean the their hits, particularly that I think came out in nineteen ninety, just became instant classics. Like they were a thing that just you heard them and you go, These will never go away. We'll be hearing these in some form or fashion for decades as we all have. Well, and that was definitely the rise of, of sort of the alternative uh culture at the time and they, they ended up being you know, at the forefront and part of that. So I think that that's how those songs live on as well is that big, like 120 minutes and like Chris said, liquid television, like all that stuff was going on at that time. And they, you know, just got kind of got caught up in, in that as a pop culture reference now. Yep. If you were an alt kid in the nineties, they were inescapable. Yeah, absolutely. Them and their sweaters. <laughs> All right. Uh, Well, that was my first pick. It is time to move on. Uh, And we will move on to, let's see here. Chris, you were just on the show. We got to give, let's give Sean a pick and see what he comes up with. All right. So this is a very me pick, but one of the biggest things that happened in 1990 is actually a magazine cover from Go the Writer's Manual is the death throes of two BMX magazines, BMX Action and Freestyling. Uh, The publisher merged both issues because they weren't selling enough of either of them. So they merged them, and they rebranded the whole thing into a go. Now, the rebranding actually happened in 1989, but then later on, I think it was uh, middle of the year, there was a magazine cover with BMX writer Matt Hoffman doing a backflip fakie and it was the first time ever he did it at a contest in Paris and essentially this completely changed BMX forever Um, we've all seen like well I say we've all seen I think everybody in the world has seen the movie Rad and we we uh, certainly have yes uh (laughs) And uh, so the backflip scene is very epic, but really, outside of the movie Rad, nobody was doing backflips in competition ever anywhere. And there had been rumors, and this is way before the internet, and so nobody had seen it, but there had been rumors that Matt had been working on a backflip trick. And when it finally unveiled at this Paris competition, and I should note that he did a backflip, rolled backwards, and then fell off the bike. It wasn't even smooth. <laughs> it wasn't pretty. It was hideous. When you see footage of it today on, like, old grainy, you know, um, old school, over-the-shoulder camera footage of it, it's, you know, you look at it and you go, oh, God, that's really ugly. But that one trick, if you've watched any of the X Games uh, since they started, everybody does backflips now. There's some sort of backflip variation. There are 12-year-olds riding skate parks in the middle of the country that nobody has ever seen that are doing backflips, and they're doing them as easily as they learn to walk. And it was this one event and this one trick that just completely changed the sport forever. And it was weird for me to think that that event happened over 30 years ago now. And now if I even try to pedal my bike too hard, everything hurts. <laughs> Well, I don't know anything about anything that you just said, but I love that pick because, one, it's so very you, 
and two, it's it's a unique pick. Like nobody else is going to be listening to any other podcasts and hear like that <laughs> referenced, unless it's literally just a BMX podcast. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's normally like a bunch of BMX nerds are like, "Oh, I have that issue. It's on my shelf right here." Like yeah. me and twelve other dudes in the southeast might know what the hell I'm talking about. That, that's that's a perfect piece of pop culture variety right there. I love it. Any any other uh, <laughs> Go magazine cover memories from anybody else? <laughs> but I have I, I have so fun. many. <laughs> I, I will say that I almost went with Skate TV on Nickelodeon as being a standout from the 90s because that was also the first time you had action sports as in a crossover setting at all. So I do feel like 1990 may have been a uh, a terminal year um, or a pivotal year. Not terminal. It's not dead yet. But a, a pivotal year for the action sports industry with a Nickelodeon TV show introducing the world to Tony Hawk and then uh, Matt Hoffman driving all of us BMX kids crazy. Well, like I said in the beginning, uh, 1990 seemed like such a massive year for lots of things, so it wouldn't surprise me a bit if it was another launching point for for that, in a way. Oh, absolutely, I think. All right. uh, Let's now, Chris, I think it's your turn now. We can can all take a breath and, and realize it's been two episodes. Go ahead and tell us. Your 1990 pick. All right. So my first favorite thing is something that I think everyone on this call has seen or is at least aware of because it was uh, a milestone in movie history, one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, For me personally, uh, just because of my Italian heritage, it was almost like watching uh, stories I heard from the family through the years played out on film. I am talking, of course, about Goodfellas. Oh yes, absolutely. One of uh, one of my favorite films, just a fantastic film. It is, uh, as the great Jay Moore once said to Ray Liotta, "You were in a perfect film, Ray. You realize you were in a perfect film." And uh, <laughs> there's really not one critique I could give it. Uh, it's a sentimental favorite. It's a long time favorite. It's something that I've had on VHS and DVD, and will watch anytime it's on. Uh, fun factoid is the night that my son was born when we were in the delivery room and just uh, getting comfortable and getting prepared. Goodfellas was on VH1, so you know it was uh, chopped up to all hell. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And my wife said, no, leave it on. So my son, uh, the, little, the little boy with the Italian name, was born on St. Joseph's Day, an Italian holiday, as Goodfellas played on the television in the delivery room. So even more of a sentimental favorite uh, just due to that aspect of it. Oh, that's perfect. I think old school was playing while my son was born. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that either, though. (laughs) Not quite as sentimental, but but still good. You're my boy, Blue. No, but it is one of the better Will Ferrell efforts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Goodfellas is, I went through, as I think most people do at some point or another, or at least most film fans do at some point or another, we all go through a serious gangster phase. So I was watching anything that had basically the cast of Goodfellas in it, because those guys were all in all the gangster movies throughout the 90s. Yep. Uh, but Goodfellas was the one that stood out the most, because it felt... You know, the Godfather movies kind of feel like they're for old people uh, and also end up being terrible. Uh, Godfather 3 never happened. 
Uh, and then, but there's there's something about Goodfellas that Leota's character is so he's such a douche, but he's so relatable too. Like you connect to that guy, even though he's just horrible. Uh, he's like he's got his flaws, but you can't help but kind of root for him in a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then of course Pesci is just incredible, o- over the top, crazy, uh, quotable, and and in the way it's shot. I mean, it is it is it's perfect. It's a perfect movie. It's flawless. Uh, I I'm always every time I go to watch it, I think oh, it's a little long, but then it isn't. Like it, no, it's it, a very easy watch. Yeah, the pacing is, is immaculate. It's it's perfect. If if you have that friend who had never went through the gangster movie phase, this is the primer. This is the one you start them with. I think. Uh, Beth and Sean, you guys, uh, I, I know you've got to have some feelings about Goodfellas. Uh, I am that friend that you just discussed. Stop. Stop. I haven't seen this. <laughs> it's been years. How have you I feel like you should have seen all the movies by now. I haven't seen I haven't seen any of the Godfather films. I haven't seen Goodfellas. Um like that entire uh Italian gangster subgenre completely missed me. Oh You're wow. gonna have some homework after this podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I was reading Go, the Writer's manual. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Beth? Well, now I don't feel so bad because I'm not the only one who missed the gangster phase. <laughs> but I at least have seen it. And of the gangster movies that came out following the popularity of Goodfellas, it is the best one. And I still have not seen a gangster movie that beats it. Uh, Departed tries, but it's not Italian, so it doesn't really count. But I, I do enjoy it. It's not something I want to sit and watch all the time, and it's not something I'll seek out. But it is a good movie, and it definitely still has merit. It's the tombstone of Italian gangster movies. <laughs> all right. Well, Beth, that is perfect, because that leads right into your first pick. I am going to go ahead and get my most obvious pick out of the way, and because I'm still really trying hard to narrow down a couple of my other choices so i'm just going to knock this one out now and it will surprise no one when i pick twin peaks as my first favorite thing of course (laughs) of course i kind of figured everybody be expecting it anyway but how could i not pick it Uh, if someone was writing a soap opera but fell into a deep delusional fever dream this is what you would get It is basically a soap opera, but it also has some of the most bizarre things that you could ever imagine. There's there's a backward-talking dwarf, and there's hell with red curtains and a stripy floor, but it's not really hell. And and at the time, of course, what TV show was doing anything remotely as strange as what was happening on Twin Peaks, and what show would open up with the body of a dead girl? That That is how the show introduces itself, is there's a body of a dead teenager wrapped up on a beach and the entirety of the first season is them trying to discover who killed this girl but in between there is some strange strange shit happening and you find that this lovely wholesome town of Twin Peaks is not lovely or wholesome and we get to see it all through the very endearingly naive eyes of Kyle MacLachlan's Agent Dale Cooper who loves nothing more than a damn fine cup of coffee 
and damn fine apple pie. If if you get through the first season, you know there there is a second season that's gets even stranger and even campier. And of course, the third season came out a few years ago. It's got its moments as well, but the first season definitely, I'd say, if you haven't seen it, at least give the first season a shot. So, do you know anything about the background about how the hell David Lynch convinced? Was it CBS or ABC? <sighs> convinced whatever network it was yeah. to let I him ABC. to to let him make this. I honestly don't know. That is probably a Terry question that I would have to go wake him up for. But uh, I do know that Mark Frost, the other producer, had some clout with TV that David Lynch did not. Uh, that Well, and that's probably probably for a whole other podcast, because at some point I think we've got to talk about David Lynch. I am... Uh, I have enjoyed and I own several of David Lynch's films... He, he baffles me, but fascinates me at the same time. But Twin Peaks is something that I've tried and, uh, I guess, failed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just can't stick with episodic David Lynch, I don't think. I, I get it, because it's it's too weird, but not weird enough. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And Well, and it's... A lot of its quality is this sort of weird, arid, uh, not waiting, but suspense or, or something. Like, there's a lot of almost breathless, like, what's happening? Oh, nothing. Oh, nothing <laughs> is happening. Oh, wait, now this new person. What is this person going to... Oh, they left already. Well, that... Like, it's just... I feel like one day my brain will click into the right spot where I'll be ready to accept Twin Peaks into my life. But it hasn't happened yet. I've tried a few times. It's not Jesus. It's okay if you don't accept it into your life. <laughs> I don't feel that it is okay. Uh, what about you guys? Any any Twin Peaks? I have like the vaguest recollections of it. Uh, it was a little over my head because I was only 10 and 11 at the time that it was on. I know the bare minimum of it from watching it, I want to say maybe like 2005, 2006. Um, I didn't see anything uh, that Showtime did a couple of years ago, that, uh, that third season that you mentioned. So my knowledge is the bare minimum. It's something that I've always said, oh, I'll have to get back to that one day now that I'm older and you know more capable of understanding where it was going. And it's just... I've never come back around to it. Sean, I see you being a big Twin Peaks fan. I um, have seen the Psych episode, Dual Spires, <laughs> which is an homage to Twin Peaks. Um, I, I've seen it. <laughs> my, uh, my significant other, though, Jen, has an encyclopedic knowledge of all things Twin Peaks and has produced an entire range of uh artwork all based around twin peaks and so my understanding of twin peaks is i know the scenes that jen has drawn where where can we find this artwork sean uh if you go to smells like cheese.com her website has a few of those up there i think or uh smells like cheese art on instagram she has them there there you go yeah yeah and i have uh without understanding what i was walking into visited one of the twin peaks restaurants that has nothing to do with the show, 
Uh, and my, my son, my son and I were both very embarrassed and turned right around and walked out. Oops. But yeah, if, so poorly named. If you're a fan of white trash girls in bikinis, then I highly recommend you go check out your local Twin Peaks restaurant. Not that there's anything wrong with that. If, uh, if all right. That's well, that's thing. Have at it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Go for it. I'm sure they'll. Really have a nice time with you. Uh, that brings us all the way back around to the beginning, and we are going to start this time with Sean. All right. Oh, so this was tough. Man, everything about this year was tough. Um, but I think I've decided on Samurai Pizza Cats. That's not true at all. Uh, I've got obscure enough with Go the Riders Manual. I'm not going to go with Samurai Pizza Cats. Yeah, if you dig any deeper than that, we're just going to lose people. <laughs> um, no, I'm going to go right to the top of something that I'm sure everybody has seen because, well, hell, if I've seen it, we know other people have. Uh, my first date ever was to the movies to see the movie Ghost. <laughs> wow that date must have gone really well if this is one of your favorite picks uh actually to be honest it really did i think i had a girlfriend for like a month after that which you know in the 1990s was a really long time for 15 year old sean um yeah it was you know we ended up dating and it was a great love story and the righteous brothers song was fantastic and I was glad that I wore a, a decorated shirt, which the style of clothing I was wearing will come up again later with another <laughs> pick. But uh, <laughs> the uh, the young lady I was with got very sad and cried on my shoulder, and uh, she was wearing a lot of eye makeup that ended up <laughs> on my purple paisley print shirt uh, <laughs> with matching socks. And, um, yeah, it was uh, – I was like, oh, this must be what dating is like. And it was both simultaneously appropriately awkward for a 15-year-old and um, a standout in my memory, weirdly, of all of uh, the girls I dated in high school, which there weren't many. The only name I can remember was this young lady's name. I'm not going to say it here because God knows she'll end up being a listener or something. And she won't have as fond memories as I do of crying at that movie. I, th um, I think young you was right about that, though. That it is that is what dating and relationships in general are like, is, is you do your very best to please and to do something they'll enjoy, and they end up crying. Yeah, pretty much that's, that's my that's, entire that's dating it. career up yeah. until Jen. Yeah. <laughs> It's like I should have known I was going to end up divorced at some point. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yeah, so Ghost, um, I, and actually I would still really enjoy that movie. Jen is very ambivalent about it. Um, the, uh, the pottery scene is so cringeworthy now, but I thought it was so exciting when I was 15. Um, but you're pulling a pottery class with your girlfriend the next day. Uh, <laughs> at the moment, you know, <laughs> if Gwinnett County Public Schools would have made it available as an option, I'd have taken that class. Most romantic ceramics class in high school history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, um, 
it's it's funny you brought up I never even imagined anybody would have Ghost as one of their favorite picks. It was actually <laughs> it was actually one of my bad picks. <laughs> my, mine too. <laughs> so for me, and look, here I I've gotta say this first. I have to qualify this first. I think Ghost is a very, very good movie. However, I didn't watch Ghost for years because I had no interest whatsoever in romance movies. Like I was a big Patrick Swayze fan, as you know if you listen to the Needless Things podcast. Um, and now he's in this like sappy, sentimental, what looks to me to be a bullshitty movie. And then once I finally did watch it, I was infuriated because so much of it was so cool. Like you have Vincent Chiavelli's character on the subway going crazy and being this terrifying, like ruthless ghost guy. And then like, there's a lot of really cool stuff in it that if they hadn't made the romance angle so schmaltzy and over the top, it would have been just a cool supernatural movie. So it actually kind of pissed me off for being for parts of it being as good as they were. (laughs) And for the, the, making Swayze not a total badass. The scene where the villain gets drugged to hell is really pretty epic. Yeah, when yeah. you think about it. It's awesome. For a romance. Yeah, it's and it, 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 the funny thing is, it has such... The movie has such notoriety, but it really is a weird movie for something that's so mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. Beth, why did you not like Ghost? <laughs> Um, I, contrary to what people may believe, do have a heart, and and I don't hate romance, but I hate that kind of romance, where it's so over the top, and so schmaltzy, and just, just so cringy, and that whole pottery scene, just, <laughs> just everything about it, just, ugh. they ruined Patrick Swayze, I can't stand Demi Moore's voice, just everything about it to me was just wrong yeah that's that's yeah <laughs> chris any uh any ghost thoughts uh i actually saw a ghost probably the most out of any of us as a kid because between my mother and my cousins and my aunt like everybody at some point had rented it or purchased it or it was on cable and uh growing up as a uh, soap opera fan uh where i was already uh, well-versed in uh, things like Dallas and Dynasty and a grandmother who ha- absolutely had to have Days of Our Lives on at 1 o'clock every afternoon, uh, the schmaltz and the romance angle did not uh, really affect me in any way because I had seen plenty of that <laughs> right, uh, right. over the years. <laughs> but uh, I was I was drawn, like you mentioned, you know, like when you watched it with kind of like that fresh set of eyes when you were older, I was more drawn to like that whole, you know, mystery and suspense of, him being a ghost and trying to kind of like navigate his way through the world like that kind of grabbed me a little bit more because the other stuff was kind of par for the course with stuff I had already seen. So it's, uh, you know, it's one of those movies, uh, like I mentioned with Goodfellas, it's one of those movies that I think has a rightful place in movie history for the phenomenon that it became. Uh, But in the case of Ghost, I mean, in my massive movie collection, I don't even think I've had it since it was on VHS. Yeah, it's. I mean, it deserves its acclaim, but it's just not. Uh, it's not for everyone. <laughs> uh, all right, well, Chris, it, it is your turn. What is your second 
favorite thing. Not not literally your second favorite thing, but but uh, number two on your list of favorites. All right, so I am gonna dip my toes into the music pool for my second choice because uh, the breakthrough album for my favorite hip hop group of all time was laid upon the world in 1990. It is A Tribe Called Quests, yes. People's Instinctive Travels, and The Paths of Rhythm, featuring the classic Benita Applebaum and one of my personal favorite songs of all time, I Left My Wallet in El Segundo. The the storytelling... Is, well, this you, you please continue on. I can wait my turn. No, by all means, you can jump in whenever you want to. Um, but uh, Tribe is uh, not only my favorite hip-hop act of all time, hip-hop group, however you want to say it, uh, but just one of my favorite musical acts of all time. I've always been into the hip-hop genre, and as a kid for me, it was about you know the beats and what was catchy, but growing up as a teenager, and then especially like late teens, early 20s, kind of like getting online and doing a little bit more research and just seeing the significance in some of the lyrics and the background, some of these songs and how they were put together with the jazz samples and the production. It's just, I really have to give Q-Tip and Tribe, you know, their due because they put together so many classic albums, but this was the first one. Uh, I don't even say that this is the best one. I think that one goes to the low end theory. I know it's kind of like popular opinion, but I agree with it, but this is the one that put them on the map and it's the one that exposed me to them and made me a fan for life. I uh, I discovered De La first out of the you know that native tongue group of, mm-hmm. of acts, and they'll always be my well. I say they'll always be my favorite. There's a whole other episode because I got a lot to say about De La Soul, but uh, I discovered Tribe second, and De La is almost kind of a gimmick in a way, which I love. But De La, or a Tribe Called Quest is, to me, seems much more earnest musically, mm-hmm. much more grounded, and I'm more likely to want to sit down and listen to an entire Tribe album than really almost any hip-hop I own. Yeah, it's just, they, they fit the bill for if you're in a laid-back mood, if you're in a fun mood, like... There's something for everybody with Tribe Called Quest. Like, they never leaned too much in any way. It, and they're the best albums to just kind of like, you know, it's a Sunday, you're grilling, you're chilling outside, you're driving around. Like, they just fit in so many different ways. Uh, have you seen, I, I know uh, Michael Rappaport's uh, kind of a divisive personality at this point. But oh, I love Have you seen him. the documentary that he did? I own it. Yep, it, I own it, it. It was so so good. Um, anybody, any kind of fan of hip hop, wh- whether you're a huge Tribe Called Quest fan or not, uh, I think that that's mandatory viewing for a hip hop fan. But I, yeah, I just I, I love them. They're great. Uh, I got to see them at Lollapalooza, and I was very disappointed that the because it was Beastie Boys and Tribe Called Quest were both there, and at the time, Ill Communication had come out with the uh get it together with q-tip and the beastie boys and i 100 percent was positive they were going to play that song and they didn't there was no crossover whatsoever between the beasties and tribe it was was so weird i because i love that that's one of my favorite beastie songs that's a great song yeah yeah it's one of their best um but yeah that uh that album 
I actually a low end theory was the first one that I got, and I kind of re- you know went back. This is this is story of my life with basically any band. Uh, is is I I very rarely get it on the ground floor. So I went back and for a time actually enjoyed people's instinctive travels a little bit more just because it was fresh and new. Because uh, Midnight mm-hmm. Marauders wasn't out yet, so those were the only two I had. So it was kind of like this was the, to me this was the new one after Low End Theory, even though it wasn't. So yep. I, I kind of got into it a little more because for me it was the sophomore thing. So. Yeah, I, I I love it, and and left my wallet in El Segundo is one of my favorite storytelling rhymes ever. It's hilarious oh. and and funny and relatable, and uh, it's it's the cooler version of parents just don't understand. That's an excellent comparison. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. Uh, I, Beth, Sean, what do you guys? Uh, have anything to say about this this first tribe album i i did not really know hip-hop at the time of course i knew the beastie boys but uh, i mean at that time i was i was pretty college radio driven so those were the bands i knew about and of course now i know who tribe is and have for many years and now i love them but at the time it just hip-hop wasn't really on my radar not that i was a snob about it i just didn't know it yeah yeah but I agree, Low End Theory is their best album. I was a huge fan of, of the hits off this album. I didn't, uh, I don't think I actually had this one. I don't think I picked up a Tribe album until Low End Theory. But um, when you go back, you like Left My Wall and Also Gonna, Benita, Applebaum, Can I Kick It are just such classics. And they, hip hop was still new and, and on the rise, but this was like hearing Tribe and that whole Native Tongues group was. Uh, it kind of opened my eyes to the idea that hip-hop could be, like there was an alternative type of hip-hop that was out there that was different than kind of everything. I mean, this was also the Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer glory years as right, well. And right. so, um This was such a different, different thing and so very thoughtful and introspective and did different things with the art form. Um, I, I didn't have this realization in 1990 because I was at ghost but uh (laughs) you're still listening to the the righteous brothers yeah exactly on a loop for at least a month uh (laughs) fun summer um but uh listening this is like oh i think this is kind of like what folk music was in the 60s this is the stuff that they're doing here with hip-hop and they're taking this in a completely different direction that I find really, really compelling and don't truly understand. Well, and speaking of listening to the album all the way through, uh, you with this one, you have to. Otherwise, Bonita Applebaum ends with the beginning of Can I Kick It? And then you don't get that satisfying uh, opening. Is, it the, is that the sitar? It, no, it's the... Uh, it 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 literally the opening the can I kick it begins at the end of Bonita Applebaum. Oh, if you're listening, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It, like if you're listening to a tape, as we maybe would have been back in the day, then it goes straight through. If you're listening to vinyl, it goes straight through. But if you're on a CD and you're like skipping tracks, you you lose the opening of Can I Kick It on track eight, or it, like it just doesn't work. So you gotta you gotta put that vinyl on. You gotta sit down. And you gotta listen to the whole thing. Uh, all right, it is your turn, Beth. 
All right, so while I try to whittle down my album choices, I'll go ahead and get my movie choice out of the way and bring up what I consider to be a romantic movie in 1990, and that was, of course, Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> Which I, I, I know it's also fairly obvious choice for me, but that doesn't make it less valid, because I thought this movie was absolutely gorgeous. Because remember when Tim Burton and Johnny Depp didn't suck? It was in 1990. Everything about this movie to me is just a... It's a beautiful, dark fairy tale. And, you know, nowadays it's nice to have a movie where Johnny Depp doesn't open his mouth even one time. I mean, he talks a little bit, but he just stays silent. And wouldn't we all love to go back to that Johnny Depp? (laughs) I, I just think that this movie is so... It's visually beautiful. The story, the acting... Vincent Price is fantastic. Even Winona Ryder, who got to be a little much in the 90s, is good in this. I I just love everything about it, and I can still sit down and watch it, and it's just beautiful. I came into this movie a huge fan of uh, Batman, obviously. Beetlejuice. Um, I don't know how aware I was of, like, I knew the name Tim Burton by that point, but I don't know if I knew he did Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Um, but coming off of Beetlejuice and Batman, I looked at Edward Scissorhands and I thought, ugh, he's doing a romance movie. As you can see at the age of 14... I was not into the idea of romance. So you were like me going into Ghost. <laughs> yes. Uh, but eventually I did... I, wa- I want to say I even ended up seeing it in the theater. Um, and I'm not positive that's accurate, but I, I feel like I did. I feel like my memory of this initially is theatrical. Uh, and and it's it's incredible. It's a, it's a great Tim Burton movie. I mean, they're, you know, up, up to a certain point. They're all great. But this one really is, to me, this is more his aesthetic than than anything else, except maybe you know Nightmare Before Christmas, which he didn't direct, but but is obviously straight out of his brain. Uh, it's that goth aesthetic set with a sort of wistful romance in this bizarre suburban setting like it's so perfectly him uh if if you go and look at his original frank and weenie short or even the newer version which i think is great uh it's in that as well where horror invades suburbia and everything about edward scissorhands you know we talked about goodfellas being perfect edward scissorhands also is perfect it's weird it's bizarre but I feel like every second of that movie is everything that Tim Burton intended it to be. Uh, and, and I just love it for that. The, the way that these, uh, Oh shoot. Who's the, who's the main, the mom, the main actress, uh, Oh, Diane Weist, Diane Weist, the way that she just accepts him and wants to bring him into their society is, is just beautiful. Um, the, you know, the love story between Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp is wonderful. Uh, the, it's just, it's incredible. It's about trying to fit in 
to a world that you don't fit into. And and certainly at that age, I could identify with that. At, at 44, I can identify with that. Uh, it's it's beautiful. It's it's one of the most beautiful movies, I think. Uh, Sean, what about you? This is one that I am sure I had to have seen probably multiple times. Could probably quote lines from it. Don't actively remember watching it. <laughs> I mean, at, at least you think you've seen it. That's a step up for you. You were, I, yeah, you were programmed a, with it. It's okay. I, I'm way I'm, I'm doing better with uh, with this than I am with Goodfellas. But <laughs> yeah, it's one of those movies where like I know so much of it, but I don't know if I know so much of it because it's invaded so much of the other popular culture that I've consumed that I've just sort of consumed it by proxy. But I can't remember actively sitting down. I know it wasn't one I saw in the theaters, but I feel like I had to have seen it at some point because again i'm super familiar with it with no recollection but i also am on record as having a lot of head injuries so it's entirely <laughs> possible that i have entire chunks of my brain that don't work anymore i've i've <laughs> actually had that experience where i thought i knew something just by its relation to other things because in the most recent example uh there was no doubt in my mind a few years ago that i had seen leatherface texas chainsaw massacre 3 like, I knew it. It was just, I've seen them all. Of course I've seen them all. And then I sat down to watch it, and I was like, I've never fucking seen this movie. How is this possible? And it was one of those things where it was just a part of everything else, and I just kind of missed it. So I, I can sort of relate to that. You know what it is, but maybe you're not sure you've seen I it. I've also binge-watched entire series, like, second and third times that I know I've seen before and seen episodes and had no recollection of ever watching that episode. And it's, like, in the middle, like, random episode nine of a show I've watched multiple times go, I've never seen this one before. So, Sean, how many times have I got to tell you? you got to wear a helmet when you're doing those backflips. <laughs> yeah, this is true. <laughs> this is true. Oh, the action sports accidents come back to haunt me. <laughs> uh, Chris, what about you? Uh, great movie. I uh, did not get to see it in the theater. Saw it on the rental circuit. I remember we rented it. And just a fun movie, uh, which is kind of sad to say that it's a fun movie because it does have that Tim Burton darkness to it. Um, but just, you know, completely watchable, completely likable, sympathetic main character. Uh, everyone in the cast was great. Anthony Michael Hall was at his douchey best yes. in that one. Um, yeah, just it's one of those uh, childhood classics. And it is one that uh, I think is essential viewing for everybody. It's just another one of those A-list, uh, deserves its spot in history movies, which this podcast is already full of. And we're only about halfway through. I know, right? Well, that's I think that's Tim Burton's method. Is he's like, we're gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, we're gonna have so much fun together, and then I'm going to make you feel feelings. Like that's what he does. He he pulls you in with these bizarre, wild worlds, and then all, before you know it. You're like, I wish he could be happy. <laughs> I, I'm not ashamed to admit that I, I cried at, at the end of this one. And and several other of his movies. I, I didn't that first time, or, or probably at times after that, but I, I do now. But I, I cry at commercials with dogs in them now. So that's hey, me too. Really Damn point. Sarah McLaughlin. Those things yeah. are sad. <laughs> no, I mean just like dog food commercials where the dogs are like running around and happy and stuff. I'm like, they're so cute. Look, I've teared up at the new Bill Farmer dog show on Disney Plus. Oh, don't I just get me started. That, that comes with getting old. 
Um, all right. Uh, well, it is back around to me, and this should surprise no one that I have to talk about a toy line. And this toy line was a formative one for me, and that is the Marvel Superheroes line from Toy Biz. Uh, it started in 1990, or else I wouldn't be talking about it right now. And it was, first of all, let me recommend that all of our listeners know that typically when we're talking about toys, we use figurerealm.com as a reference. It's a dangerous place because you can find stuff that you didn't even know existed, but it also has a pretty darn encyclopedic list of every toy line ever. Um, so you can go to figurerealm.com right now, look in Marvel Toys. There are about 40 different companies that have done Marvel Toys. And uh, Toy Biz, in 1990, released the first eight figures uh, after getting the Marvel Comics license. Now, how they were able to get this Marvel Comics license is the previous year, this startup company that had never done anything before managed to land the license for a small independent film called Batman. Uh, (laughs) Their admittedly rather shitty toy line made tons and tons of dollars because it had Batman on it. Uh, And actually, the Batmobile and the Batwing from that are pretty cool, and the figures are what they are. Uh, But if you look at that original Batman figure, you will understand exactly why these Marvel Comics figures look like they look. Uh, They are very basic figures. They have knee joints. They have no elbow joints but bent arms. Uh, and they released Captain America, Daredevil, Dr. Octopus, Dr. Doom, Incredible Hulk, Punisher, Spider-Man, and Silver Surfer. And those eight figures were so exciting to me at the time because I was deep, deep into comic books. And these characters, you know, in 2020, you walk up to anybody on the street and you mention Daredevil or Dr. Octopus or Punisher, they know exactly who you're talking about. In 1990... These characters were not exactly high profile. Even Captain America wasn't the name he is now. So seeing these, going into Toys R Us and seeing these great looking blister cards with exciting comic art and these characters that hadn't had toys since the Mego line back in the 70s was incredible. Uh, Spider-Man has... You know, looking at these now, they're charming in how primitive they are. There's a Spider-Man figure uh, with barely any articulation, and he's got suction cups permanently attached to his hands. Like, it makes him more of a car decoration than an action figure, but it was so exciting to see this Spider-Man in this scale. This was this, like, sort of four to five inch scale that the Batman line of the previous year had been uh, Punisher had cap firing weapons Dr. Octopus had more suction cups uh, they were just so great to see and of course getting that Marvel license is what led Toy Biz to eventually years later launch Spider-Man Classics which is what led into Marvel Legends which now you know continues to this day under Hasbro's guidance but this is a landmark line a landmark series of admittedly pretty crappy action figures but I I have such a fondness for them and my memory of the first time I walked into Toys R Us and saw them hanging on pegs is so clear because I didn't know it was happening. Uh, I had that Batman figure, and I loved it because it was Batman, and I loved that movie. 
and then here are Marvel Comics figures designed the same way that are compatible with him. So now I can have uh, Batman high five Spider Man suction cup. Uh, but <laughs> but I just this to me is a very very important and sometimes I feel overlooked uh, series of action figures. I, I just I, I really love them. Uh, anybody else? remember this let alone is aware of the significance of these eight figures i had every single one of them <laughs> but to the surprise of nobody i was all in on this line uh this, you mentioned the spider-man with the suction cup hands and god was i devastated when there was no way for me to just punch somebody without right. a suction cup. you know <laughs> decapitating dr doom um you know the hulk one was the first i believe i got the hulk and dr octopus together the first time i saw them uh the hulk being my favorite superhero of all time and he came with uh, a pipe and a boulder that he could bend and crush there was like the little pull tab on his back so the action features you know for a 10 11 year old kid were pretty cool at the time um captain america with the shield launcher he didn't just hold on to his shield he actually had like a gi joe-ish type of device that would strap to his wrist and fire the shield off and that shield it flew it did it, in 1990, those springs still had some punch. They certainly did. Excuse me. And they uh, these figures, you mentioned the Batman line. I was all in on Batman. You know, I was already uh, deep into collecting comics. So anything superhero comic book related, I was all about it. So I blended these in with the Batman movie figures. And from this point on, I was collecting everything that Toy Biz did, whether it be the Marvel superheroes, whether it was the X-Men line that came not all that long after. Uh, you know, the Toy Biz figures, they are pretty cheesy, pretty goofy. Um, some of the features, some of the likenesses, uh, a lot of the variants uh, can be a little out there. But they were just so fun to collect, and it was just so awesome to have that variety after such a dry spell in my youth of barely any type of superhero stuff from you know marvel or dc being licensed you know outside of you know the secret wars line and the superpowers line there wasn't too much to go on until toy biz kicked it into full gear yeah and it's funny like looking back you know superpowers and secret wars were what 85 and 86 right around there so yeah. only four or five years before this but when you're a kid that's an eternity mm-hmm but yeah, I just I, I love this line. Uh, Sean, Beth, any uh, any thoughts about these guys? Surprisingly, I get... I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I would say I didn't get any of these guys in 1990, but I got uh, a few of the X Men. I think I probably got Wolverine, and I know I had Gambit. Uh, a, a few years later, they were they they kept me company in my dorm alongside the Ninja Turtles and. Um, yeah, it was great that they were the same scale as all the Batman figures as well. So you could do all the crossovers. That, uh, I mean, I was in college, so I totally wasn't doing crossovers. <laughs> Except I completely was, because I wasn't on dates. Um, yeah, so it was nice you could have all those crossover characters, and you're like, oh, I've got a whole universe now. Now, when you say you weren't on dates, were you not on dates, or was it just that no girls wanted to go see Ghost with you? It was a little column A, little column B. <laughs> Why not both? <laughs> Beth, what were you going to say? Uh, I was going to say, surprisingly, uh, as a 15 to 16-year-old girl during this time, <laughs> I was, was in not, the toy aisle? <laughs> not really in the toy aisle that often. 
Uh, all right. That brings us back around to uh, Chris. What is your number three? All right. To the shock of no one. Uh, you know, last year when we did 1989, we talked about my favorite TV show of all time. Wait, Chris, I let us I let us get off track. Bad Uh-oh. host, bad moderator. I totally forgot. Speaking of bad, we have to go through our bad picks now. Ah, that's true. So what from 1990 displeased you? So this one, uh, you actually kind of buried the lead on this one earlier in the show, and it ties in somewhat to my first choice because the sheer disappointment that I felt when I finally saw The Godfather Part 3, you know, as uh, as an Italian youth, uh, as I mentioned with Goodfellas, it's kind of a rite of passage that you grow up on these films and, and you watch them, and it's kind of like taking a history class. Uh, in certain ways and I had seen both Godfather movies Uh, I did not have the appreciation for them that I grew to have when I got older but I liked them because I was just used to them being on all the time I mean for so many people to tell me through the years oh those movies are so long well yeah they're just you know I leave them on and you know listen and cook and clean and do whatever I've got to do but when I was a kid you know to me it was just kind of interesting because they were R-rated movies, and I was all about being able to watch what I really shouldn't be watching. And when Godfather 3 came out, I got enough of the history of the movie and the story and the characters to know that something just wasn't right. And the disappointment continued on uh, as I got older and understood more about the movies and the thought process and the story behind it all. And although I do own it, because I own the entire collection, uh, it's definitely the black sheep of the family. It's it's the one that we just don't like to talk about. We kind of stop at part two. Yeah. And that's how they get you is they, they put together these great like box sets or collections or whatever, where you end up having to have the shit movie to go along with the good movies. It's yeah. We're not selling enough of this uh, on its own. So we're just going to pack it with the ones that we know we're going to get some money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this, I, like you said, I didn't watch any of the Godfather films for a long time because it just seemed like, oh, these are going to be slow, boring films. I, I don't care or whatever. Uh, and then once I finally did watch the first one, I was like, that was freaking incredible. I cannot wait to watch the other ones. Uh, Godfather 2, I, I really enjoy. I think it's very good. And then 3, I just hit a wall. I was like, what? how is this even from the same person that made those other two movies. I, I, I don't, I don't understand the the quality doesn't feel the same. The, the act, I don't know. It just, it just feels like a mess to me. And I, I'm not opposed to the story that they're trying to tell, but it just feels like the execution is, it's, I don't know. It's just spastic. It's weird. I, I don't get it. The originals, they kind of feel like almost like a period piece, like they actually kind of feel historical. And the third one, to me, felt like it was trying to be a little bit more of like those slicked up, like Billy yes. Bass, mobsters, Bugsy type of movies that were coming out around that time. That's that's actually a very good call, and I hadn't really looked at it like that before, but you're right. It, it feels less traditional, more more like it is trying to fit in with that crop of of movies that 
yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not not a fan, not a fan here. Beth, Sean, any any thoughts about Godfather Three? Well, now I know to never watch it. <laughs> oh no! You it, once you watch the first two, you have to watch it. It's part of the process. <laughs> it's a requirement. I'll watch it first, and then oh no, watch don't them in do, reverse. No, no, don't do that because then you'll never watch the other two. <laughs> <laughs> I watch the Godfather movies like I watch Key and Peele from the last episode to the first. What an odd decision. I it wasn't <laughs> intentional. I'm just a spaz. <laughs> What about you, Beth? Have you even seen it? I I have not. Good for I, you. I saw the first one. I think I might have seen the second one. It's one of those I just don't remember if I did or not. But I remember hearing enough about how terrible the third one was that I was just like, yeah, I don't. I, if I want to watch something, I want to watch something that's intentionally terrible, or right, at least right. I can make fun of, not something that's just gonna destroy me yeah, so this that I can't even that. make fun of it. It's not entertainingly bad. It's just not good. Uh, but that brings us to what is uh, your... What displeased you in 1990? Ooh. Okay, well, I hate to be that asshole because I'm going to bum everybody right the fuck out. Oh, no. I'm Were you mad when s- the Berlin Wall came down? <laughs> I am talking about the death of Jim Henson. Oh, come on. I know. It was the thing that bummed me out the most. Uh, it. I mean, I'm sorry that I have to be that asshole, but it was like losing a member of the family. That man had been in my life since I could remember. I, the first movie I actually remember ever seeing as a child was the Muppet movie. So when he died, it really was like losing a member of the family because everything he did meant so much to me. And on the bright side, his his legacy has carried on and the Muppets still do fantastic things. So that is still out there in the world and and all the wonderful things he did is still out there. But yeah, I remember being very devastated by that. So I'm I'm sorry to be that asshole who brought up the really bad thing instead of something we could joke about. Well, interesting story. Uh, the death of Jim, Hem- Jim Henson was the beginning of my disillusionment with organized religion. <laughs> that's you can, a, if you can handle uh, that. That's a hell of a transition. <laughs> huh. Okay. I, uh, I had six years of Catholic school for mine, but... Uh, <laughs> I uh, The church that I had been going to with my parents, I, I was starting to have some questions. You know, you, if, if you're an intelligent person, uh, and this is nothing against Christianity. This is nothing against uh, God in any way. Uh, I'm, I'm still, you know, both of those things I'm still cool with. But uh, I was just, I feel like if you're an intelligent person, there's some questions you have about the Bible and the nature of God. And I was starting to have some questions that nobody could answer. And I very specifically having, I remember having a conversation with my mom about... If there's a God, why would he take somebody like Jim Henson away from us? And she wasn't comfortable with that conversation, but she did her best. Uh, and, and, you know, very similar to the... Uh, the If you were raised in the, the sort of Baptist, Methodist type of setting... There's the whole you have to accept Jesus if you want to go to heaven. 
Uh, and, and that, of course, brings the question of, well, what about people who never get the opportunity to hear about Jesus? Do they just go to hell? And they, people don't like that question. They can't answer that. And this was another one that people kind of didn't like, couldn't give me a good answer on, or one that satisfied me at the time anyway. Uh, so, so in a way, you know, Jim Henson was provocative, and he wanted to provide entertainment that that was challenging yet accessible and he in a way that i'm sure never intended got my brain working uh so that was that's my jim henson's passing that was my experience with that you talk about bringing the show down ben <laughs> don't, All right, so don't I, mess I with should've... me I should have stuck with my first pick and gone with Frankenstein Unbound. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, gosh, what a piece of shit that is. <laughs> sorry, everybody. Uh, all right. Well, that uh, – oh, actually, I'm uh, – that would make me next, and fortunately I'm not going to be a Debbie Downer like Beth. Uh, I am just going to talk about what an abysmal piece of shit the New Adventures of He-Man cartoon was. <laughs> so – when I was a kid, I had a few, and I've talked about this on the show and in panels and wherever else many, many times, but like, I loved Masters of the Universe, the cartoon. I had some of the toys, but not a lot, just because their simplicity kind of put me off a little bit. I was, you know, Star Wars and G.I. Joe were my jam, and those big, muscly, five points of articulation dudes is is entertaining and interesting as they were just the figures themselves didn't do it for me but then in 1990 we get these new adventures figures that had more articulation that that had a different look to them they didn't look like little piles of grapes um that's how i've always thought of he-man figures it looks like <laughs> like their their muscles they just look like grapes like taped together um, I've never thought of that before. <laughs> I have an entire shelf that's just going to look weird now. <laughs> but uh, the you know these had knees and they had cool like they they just they looked like better action figures to me. Uh, and I bought He Man and I bought Skeletor when I found them because I was like, man, these are look at this cool translucent green sword and and like these figures look cool and at the time i'd not seen the cartoon i don't remember if the toys came out first or if i just hadn't watched the cartoon i don't i don't know exactly what the deal was but i very specifically remember having those figures thinking they were very cool and then watching one episode of the cartoon and throwing them in the trash because the cartoon was so unbelievably bad it was goofy and like everybody was an idiot and it was everything was played for laughs it i just it was horrible i i i just couldn't even stand it so yeah i i i have since softened on the toy line especially with what they did in masters of universe classics with those new adventures characters uh, but that cartoon I, like i wouldn't even if it was on amazon for like five bucks to get the whole series i i wouldn't buy it it's it's horrible no that's a pirate they just pirate that one no i don't even want it i don't even i don't want it in any way 
I don't want that tainting the other cartoons. No, no, no. Keep it out of my life. Uh, do you, have you guys seen any of these? Do you remember it at all? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because you know my love for the original Masters of the Universe. You know, we've, we've discussed that before. Yes, yes. And, you know, much like you, the disappointment was real because it's like there's new Hemian toys and there's a new cartoon. Like, it's coming back and... You know, we had seen Masters of the Universe, and we had seen She-Ra, and, you know, a Christmas movie, and we had all this great stuff from the original line, and this one, with all these goofy new characters, and just, you know, no true continuity to the original one, and, you know, it was just, you know, Skeletor being different, and He-Man looking more like Bo from She-Ra this time around, it was just, uh, what do the kids say, you know, not my blank, well, this was not my He-Man. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. I agree. Yeah, it was it was terrible. This is He Man and name only. Homino. And that but all credit to Scott Knightlick for, you know, years later tying those continuities continuities together and creating something that seemed so interesting, you're like, Man, maybe I need to go back and check that cartoon out. And then you do and you're like, Oh no, that was just him being cool. There is nothing redeeming about this cartoon. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not it's not good. The new comic book isn't bad. The Masters of the Multiverse. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah, that's yep. you know that's modern narrative, so they're able yeah. to take those elements and do something cool with them. Yeah. And absolutely. look, I wouldn't be opposed to you know they did the 2002 He-Man cartoon that was incredible. I wouldn't be opposed to a new adventures along those lines if somebody wanted to pick that narrative up and do a modern cartoon of it i think the idea of he-man having to go off into space to battle some other evil and skeletor uh, you know who cannot deny his love for he-man following him uh that's (laughs) fine i'd like to see that but i'd like to see it done well yeah and weirdly that continuity would work because his mom was an astronaut so there's so many ways to make that work your mom's an astronaut (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) all right sean what what disappointed you in 1990 you know it's hard to say it that it's a true disappointment it's more of a schadenfreude thing but it did well and also i'm thankful that beth was the asshole because originally i was going to go with uh, jim henson and now i don't have to instead i could talk about the wonder that is millie vanilli (laughs) who managed to both win and lose the best new artist grammy in 1990 (laughs) to to be fair sean a couple years ago you brought up the uh the challenger shuttle explosion right before it was my turn so (laughs) touche well played (laughs) that's the long con she's like next year i got you But yeah, as I was going through, because it was just so much good stuff in 1990, I was like, man, what stupid stuff happened in 1990? And by far the dumbest thing I could find was uh, Millie Vanilli. And I was like, God, they won and lost the Grammy in the same, like in my head as a kid, that occurred over a much longer time period. But it's like once the track skipped... And knowing how much people lip-sync live performances now, I don't know that we would have thought anything of it. But from the point where the album went bad, you know, the live performance went bad, and I believe it was the MTV VMAs, uh, to the point where they suddenly weren't a group anymore and the Grammys were revoking the Grammy, was a really short window of time, all things considered. Well, and that song, man, was huge. Oh, everywhere. 
everywhere. Inescapable. And and it's you know it's a good song. It's still on my iPod. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that it wasn't theirs. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, as far as '80s pop songs go, I'm gonna take most of Millie Vanilli over at least half of Paula Abdul's catalog. Well, and whoa, hey, whoa, 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 I'm just, whoa. Look, look, slow opposite down, to track, <laughs> Opposite to track is a is a objectively awful song. You're objectively awful. All right, for the <laughs> for the listeners, for some of our listeners who may not know exactly what the Millie Vanilli story was, uh, can you enlighten us? Yeah, absolutely. So Millie Vanilli uh, are two, uh, I think they were from French, right? Two French models who uh, were cast as a group. And their they, names were not Millie and Vanilli. <laughs> their names were not Millie Vanilli. So there's although, the first lie. Although, <laughs> yeah, that's what we all called them. Like, which one Which one is Millie and which one's yeah, Millie? Right, right. And they would, uh, they were basically hired to look good in tight pants, I guess, and... Well, they were they... wearing the body gloves, right? Yeah, yeah. Wasn't that and, but, the thing? But it was body gloves heads. and blazers. They were they were <laughs> right, wearing right, super right. tight. Like if it, if they came out today, they'd be in like Lululemon and uh, Brooks Brothers jacket. It was <laughs> the most confusing with thing. Enormous shoulder pads. Huge shoulder pads, and they were presented as a pop group, as an '80s pop group, and then it came out and again it was the they they had a performance at the MTV VMAs and the track that they were lip syncing to started skipping and they both freaked out one of them Millie or Vanilli I don't know which one ran off stage and then it came out shortly thereafter that the main reason why that freaked them out is not because they got caught lip syncing at a live performance which everybody who's ever done the Super Bowl has done but they apparently never sang on the album and we're just there to be pretty faces, and it was a totally different group singing on the album, and neither of these guys could actually sing at all, and the whole thing was a lie, and that's why they had their Grammy revoked, because, well, the guys that accepted it didn't actually perform on the album at all. And it was because, at the time, MTV was such a powerhouse in the music industry that you had to have somebody photogenic or i guess videogenic to put out there because apparently the original artists were not that right yeah it's i mean it's the literal video kill the radio star moment yeah yeah uh, absolutely like, you know they weren't good looking enough to be on mtv to get airplay and and uh million vanilli were so those guys were i mean they were constant those all of those songs were everywhere all the time getting constant airplay on MTV as well. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I love you. Girl, blame you it on the rain. It's true. Oh, that's right. For blame it on the rain was another one. Yeah. Oof. All right. Well, that's enough gloom and sadness for this podcast. Let's move along and try and brighten things back up with uh, Chris, back to you and your final favorite thing from 1990. So my final favorite thing from 1990 should come as no surprise to anybody. Uh, last year, we talked about my favorite show of all time, Saved by the Bell, which dealt with the escapades of kids in high school. And what better way to seek into 1990 than with another show about the escapades of kids in high school, done with a little more dramatic flair. I am talking about the epic Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> Banana, banana, banana. 
<laughs> that could not have gone any better. <laughs> please, please continue. So, uh, Beverly Hills 90210 was a staple of the Fox network. It was not as comedic as Saved by the Bell. Uh, this was done more in the uh, primetime soap opera style genre, uh, which I had mentioned I had already gotten used to. But the show tackled a lot of subjects that were becoming uh, important to people my age, people who were coming of age. So it was kind of like growing up with you know uh, Brandon and Brenda and Dylan as your high school chums, as your buddies, watching them go through all the same stuff that you might be going through. Uh, although once we kind of got midway through the series run, uh, we were not going through the same things because then you know people were getting killed on their wedding day and stuff like that. So uh, you know we weren't quite there yet. Uh, or at all in many aspects. But 1990 began the 10-season run, of which I watched every episode live and videotaped them all, and it is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Uh, I owe a lot to 90210 for uh, helping me mold my personality a bit in my formative years, uh, because as much as I idolize uh, and was inspired by Zach Morris over on Saved by the Bell, I did take a few pages out of the book of Brandon Walsh and Dylan McKay. So <laughs> I owe an awful lot to 90210. Uh, it is one of my favorite shows. Uh, I have watched and own all of the spinoffs. Uh, if you remember The Heights and Melrose Place and all, you know, the reboots, uh, just so much stuff from that franchise right up until last year when they brought the original cast back. And I've been with it every step of the way since that fateful October 1990 night. Sean, I feel like you've probably got some <laughs> things to say. Oh, I have prayed at the church of Brandon and Dylan, uh, including owning a 66 Mustang. And, um, yeah, that was a, a lifestyle-defining show for me, much like Saved by the Bell last year. Uh, as Beth can attest to, I, I hated high school. And so I loved shows about high schools where people didn't hate high school. And it was, you know, uh, a one hour a week. I could get just wrapped up in drama that could be easily consumed in a, you know, 45 minute block of time. Um, I was all in on the show. I, I went from not understanding what sideburns were to lamenting the fact that I couldn't grow them quickly enough. If you find a Shiloh high school, 1993 yearbook, you'll see a very, very, Brandon slash Dylan slash the everything looking Sean senior class photo. It's scary. Um, yeah, this the, that show was huge, uh, and I, too, watched all the spinoffs. Um, I may or may not have written a love letter to a young lady that was quoting lyrics from one of the spinoffs. Um, I'm not going to bring up my lack of ability to date again. Um, <laughs> But yeah, 90210 was huge, and I stuck through it all the way through as well, even when it got way past the point of me being able to relate to anything because I was never going to own a nightclub um, or you know, have my dad with mafia ties that might get me killed, if I remember Dylan's storyline correctly. Um, yeah, I was all in on that show. That was, uh, that was an escape that I looked forward to every single week. Well, it was never my bag. You don't say. <laughs> I I did, and look, I uh, what did I? There was one of them I got into. Uh, I think I had a brief fling with Dawson's Creek. 
uh, because I got really obsessed with Katie Holmes for a little while. Um, I feel like maybe there was another one of those teen dramas that I, I did get invested in. I don't know. Are you uh, a secret fan of the OC? No, no, definitely not. Unless you're talking was, about unless you're talking about Gallows Anderson and AJ Styles, in which case, yes. <laughs> um, but I had a friend in high school who I will not name here, other than to say Jeff Cook, uh, <laughs> who would disrupt things that we were doing so that he could get home to watch nine hundred two one zero, like band practice and stuff we would have to schedule things around his watching of 90210. It was the strangest thing to me at the time. But, uh, and I mean, this was like 93, 94, 95, I guess. So it wasn't the 1990 90210, but presumably he had been watching since then. I don't know how you would be so invested if you hadn't started from the beginning. Uh, but yeah, that's that's really my only knowledge or experience of the show at all beth were you a big 90210 fan oh yeah obviously (laughs) (laughs) sorry i couldn't keep that going i I called i was gonna say i call shenanigans i was there (laughs) uh i also hated high school and didn't want to be reminded of it in any way shape or form by people who couldn't possibly understand what it was like going to a real high school yeah i think that was more my my feeling is I, I didn't want to watch anything that had anything to do with high school. Uh, but Beth, what from 1990 did you like? <sighs> it's time. You've got to, you've got to look at that list and you've got to pick one out. Okay. Well, I'm not picking the best album and I'm not picking the one that I still listen to the most. And I'm not picking the other two that I still love. I am picking the one that had, the most impact on who I was for a very, very, very long time, and that would be D-Light's World Click. Oh, wow. This was actually on my list. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Well, then I don't feel like a crazy person. <laughs> or maybe I maybe I should. Well, yeah. That I don't, I, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should feel worse about that choice. <laughs> um, this album introduced me to dance music. Up until then, I was listening to Mopey College Radio, and I I knew that dance music existed, but it wasn't my thing. And this album, among many others that came out this year, changed my life in a significant way, because this album led to me basically living in a club for at least one night a week for probably 15 years of my life. And I don't know that that would have happened or happened as soon. And I don't know that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I don't know that that would have happened in the same way if it had not been for this album giving me dance music the way it did. Um, this music had sampling. The album had, it had Q-Tip on it. Because everybody knows, even if you don't know what World Click is, you know the song group is in the heart. And you cannot escape the fact that it is probably one of the catchiest and still most fun songs there is. So even if a lot of it hasn't aged well, Delight will always be known for this album. And even the look of them, because they were huge on MTV at the time, the look of them, I wanted to be Lady Miss Cure when I grew up. 
for a long time. Like, even after the band went away, she was still so cool. And I wanted to be that. So I started going to clubs when I was 16. When I shouldn't have been going to clubs. But, you know, permissive parents. Um, This is the album that started me down the long road to listening to terrible techno music eventually, but <laughs> that's not this album's fault. That That's where dance music went, is into techno. And I still love this album. Along with the other four that I had to push aside. Yeah, Groove is in the Heart is, is pretty much inescapable. It's, it's an incredible track. I think it's probably in, been included in more playlists that I've made over the years than any other song. Uh, it's the perfect intersection of, of hip-hop and dance. And this album is something really unique and special. Uh, these DJs came together with Bootsy Collins, Maceo Parker, you know, Q-Tip guesting on Groove is in the Heart. Like, wh- what an amazing, very, very New Yorky album, first of all. Uh, which... What what a throughout my entire life that's been sort of a mythical uh, place and ideal for me is like anything that's New York centric is automatically just sort of cool, um, but everybody knows grooves in the heart, but every song on this album again going back to what we were talking about with Tribe Called Quest to me. This album is an experience. As many times as I've listened to, to Grooves in the Heart by itself, the whole album is great, and it flows in such a wonderful way that I want to listen to the whole thing. And I, matter of fact, I recently bought a new pressing uh, of this album on 180-gram vinyl from like some little small boutique place that, that grabs up. You know, You wouldn't think of this as an obscure album, but in the grand scheme of like popular music, I don't think this is one that necessarily jumps to the forefront of people's minds. Uh, so this place kind of grabs up old forgotten classics and represses them. And, and uh, it's great. Hearing this on vinyl is absolutely wonderful. And uh, yeah, it is it's an incredible album. Everybody loves it. Uh, Chris and Sean, I'm sure you guys love this album. It's a great album. I haven't listened to the album in full in a long time. Um, Groove is in the Heart, obviously, is just a classic jam. Um, cameo from Q-Tip, you know, mentioned Tribe earlier, so that was enough to sell me on that. Plus, I'm a Parliament fan, so you got Bootsy on there. But it is just, it's one of those fun party albums, you know, just one of those, like, really, you know, this, see, we should have talked about this after the Jim Henson thing, because it would have just <laughs> the mood right up. Sean, have you heard this album? Uh. <laughs> Uh, so I'm embarrassed to say I have heard the album, but I'm embarrassed to say that this the uh, this song is what introduced me to Bootsy Collins, and I feel like that's somebody I should have known before this. No, but I was, that's, I was I, the same way. I was I did I didn't really know. I had heard some Parliament, but I didn't really know who Bootsy was. That's that's yeah, not crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair for a 15 year old. Yeah, good point. Uh, <laughs> I'll take it. But yeah, I was a, a huge fan of this, and uh, to the point where uh, I was dancing at the dance studio, and one of our instructors bore a passing resemblance to Lady Miss Keir. Oh my goodness. And I'd be lying if I said she didn't become one of my favorite instructors at the dance studio for that reason alone. <laughs> like, I went, like, as a shy kid, I was like, I want to be in your class. 
Um, and then as it, it worked out all right because I dated her daughter. Welcome to the Sean's Dating Hour. Um, <laughs> well, uh, it's better than Arian's anal corner. <laughs> Good point. But, yeah, so I guess it worked out that I went up and, and uh, I had a little bit of a crush on this woman who was old enough to be my mother. But because she passed, a, had a, she had the same haircut, I think, and some of the same facial structure. I think if you looked at a photo side by side, they looked nothing alike. But in my 15-year-old head, it did. So, sure, sure. Um, so it all worked out. But yeah, huge fan of this. This was, uh, um, this was at, again, at that time, like we talked about with They Might Be Giants, at a time, uh, time where weird music was really becoming ascendant, and this was something that was really accessible across everything. You know, this everybody kind of loved this, in spite of the fact that it, man, it had its uh, uh, roots in just not normal music by any sense. Well, uh, Sean, please continue on and share your final favorite thing from 1990. So I, I would have gone with 90210, but thankfully I have a very close second. That's why I just made it an easy first. So, again, think back to a few minutes ago. I'm at Ghost. I'm wearing a purple Paisley button-down shirt. If you've seen me as an adult, everything I own is jeans and T-shirts, probably in black because, well, I'm fat and it's slimming. But back in high school... As I talked about with the Brandon and Dylan hair, there was another show that was a little bit, uh, it, it fit in this weird in-between thing where it was kind of a Ferris Bueller ripoff, and yet better than the Ferris Bueller TV show, and it came out the week of my 15th birthday, and that was Parker Lewis Can't Lose. Yes. <laughs> and much of my wardrobe with the obnoxious color schemes uh i think again that date it was a purple shirt covered in paisleys i was probably wearing mustard z cavarici pants that had 55 (laughs) belt buckles and uh and a pair of g rocks shoes with matching with socks that matched my shirt and well if you go and do a google image search on parker lewis can't lose basically it's that outfit that the main character is wearing, and then occasionally I would flip between him and his best friend uh, Mikey, who was the rock and roller who would wear the jeans and the biker jacket. And so I basically would just—I was more or less cosplaying people <laughs> from this show all throughout high school. And um, I should be more embarrassed about that than I am, but I'm not really embarrassed at all. No, no, <laughs> yeah, it's high school. Find it all. <laughs> But yeah, so Parker Lewis can't lose. Huge standout. Uh, it only did three seasons. Um, I, I, they apparently were on Hulu, and I missed them. I'm probably just going to end up buying the DVDs, which is weird because I don't have physical media. But uh, yeah, it's it's a classic. It was another high school escapism. It was uh, yeah for me. I hated high school, but I wanted to. I felt like I should like it, and. Um, but since I didn't, it was just easier to go and watch shows that portrayed a very unrealistic version of high school that I could like, and that sort of became my my opiate that got me through four years of high school. So this and the Ferris Bueller show launched, if not the same week, the same season. Uh, and I was actually angry at Parker Lewis can't lose at first because it was just a Ferris Bueller ripoff (laughs) because that's what it seemed like but as you get into the shows Corin Nemec is this incredible charismatic lead he's 
snarky without being off-putting. He's clever. He's funny. You've got Kubiak, who's not just the bully. He's like, honestly, he might have been one of the first really fleshed-out bullies on TV that he wasn't just this brute. Like, he had character and personality as well. And to me, Parker Lewis Can't Lose not only surpassed the Ferris Bueller TV show, which nobody even talks about anymore, but is is better than the movie was. Like, if if I'm going to look at a teen high school situation, it's Parker Lewis Can't Lose. It's the greatest of all time. Oh, and I just remembered the other teen drama I got sucked into was My So-Called Life. Oh, but that's Claire Danes. That's neither here nor there, but yes, it is Claire Danes. <laughs> right. That's, that's all you need. That, that, exactly. That completely explains I've, that, because yeah, I got, I got sucked into that vortex as well. I've watched a lot of shitty independent films because of her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, it just had this quirk and personality um, that nothing else at the time had. You know, we've talked about how weird stuff like World Click and Flood kind of kind of got some some mainstream recognition and that weirdness really seemed to get a foothold in the 90s and Parker Lewis in a way was ahead of that curve because the show wasn't it was almost not based in reality like weird things happened and he would uh, I don't know it was just something that was very different and to me almost fit in more with uh, Tim Burton at his poppiest i guess it had that weirdness to it it was it was snarky without being cynical yes and and it gave it a little bit i think it was on fox so it also had a little bit more of an edge than the shows on the other channels i think that's what doomed the ferris bueller tv show is that it was a little more it, it actually didn't feel the coronemics version of parker lewis felt more like the natural progression of the Ferris Bueller from the movie than the Ferris Bueller TV show did. I think it's less that it had an edge and more that it had a distinct personality. Like, it was very much its own thing. It didn't feel like... Like, to me, I think Fox probably told the creators, yeah, go ahead, do whatever, you do your thing. As opposed to other shows, I'm sure Ferris Bueller saw a lot of interference from whatever network it was on to, yeah, to make absolutely. it into something that fit their mold. Whereas Fox at the time was still very much looking for things that didn't fit into any mold other than being original and and unique yeah absolutely this fit right in this is on their sunday night lineup which fit right in with tracy ullman and the simpsons and mary with children and and all of that stuff while Herman's still being a very head. different show oh god yeah <laughs> love i actually just recently rewatched all three seasons of that <laughs> so good do you have them on blu-ray i uh, know but i do have them on dvd Nice. <laughs> yeah, I I love this show. Um, it, it's I, matter of fact, I need to revisit it. I need to find out where it's available, and if it's if it's just DVD set on Amazon, I need to do it. Uh, huge show. I absolutely loved it. Um, uh, Chris, Beth, what about you guys? So, uh, because you guys both mentioned it, I actually recently rewatched Parker Lewis, uh, not on my DVD sets, but it is currently streaming for free on the Sony Crackle app. Oh, nice. So nice. if you have Crackle, which is a legitimate free streaming app, it's just ad-supported, uh, it's owned by Sony. I believe when I saw it, it was seasons one and two. I don't know if season three is up there, but at least the first batch of episodes 
uh, is up there for your viewing pleasure. Uh, this was another favorite of mine. Uh, I do admit that I did not love it as much as my uh, Saved by the Bell or Beverly Hills 90210 fandom went, but it was a fun show. Uh, like you said, the Sunday night lineup on Fox was pretty much uh, the must-see TV of my youth. I was very excited to see uh, Mikey played by someone who played uh, another beloved character because Billy Jane, uh, a.k.a. Billy Jacoby, was the younger brother in the classic Just One of the Guys, which is one of my favorite 80s films. <laughs> oh, yes, he was. Oh, my gosh. Whoa. So it was very, very cool and also very different to see uh, Buddy from Just One of the Guys without Playboys all over his walls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know the uh, the fourth wall breaking. Uh, I love the fact that Ferris's dad owned the video store because my little movie obsessed mind uh, just thought that that was like super cool. And I wish that my parents owned a video store so that I could just work there and you know hang out at the video store all the time because that's what I like to do anyway. Uh, but yeah, this was uh, this was another one of my favorites and something that was in my list of possibilities that I just could not narrow down. So I'm glad that it got the love from uh, Sean here tonight. Beth, what about you? Do you remember this one? I remember watching it. I remember liking it. I could not tell you a single thing that happened in an episode. It is. It has literally been since 1990 since I have watched it. I, I do remember watching it, though, and I do remember enjoying it. And fun fact, the year that I met Terry in 1991... He was going through a weird phase where he dressed like and did his hair like Parker Lewis. And I remember seeing him walk into German class and go, who the hell does he think he is? He looks like Parker Lewis. <laughs> that phase lasted for about 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's uh, just a rock-solid hairstyle, literally <laughs> and figuratively. <laughs> well, guys, uh, I've got to wrap this thing up. Uh, I have my final favorite pick. And it's a, it's a doozy. It's a big one. This is one of my favorite movies. It's a legendary, you know, I think it often gets lumped in with the 80s movies just because of who is in it and how it happened. Uh, but it is from 1990, and that is the Paul Verhoeven classic, Total Recall. Nice. Uh, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, obviously. My mom took me to see this movie. And it was right on the cusp of when I sort of stopped, because my, my mom took me to see everything in the 80s. And this was kind of one of the last ones that we went and saw together. Uh, and I very specifically remember the intense discomfort of the three-tittied Martian girl. Um, <laughs> you know, by that point, the the violence and the cursing and whatever else, we, we'd, we'd seen it all. But the three-tittied Martian girl... Uh, you know, seeing that for the first time with your mom sitting next to you is is an experience not to be repeated. Uh, no way, that's not weird. Yeah, oh yeah, it was terrible. Uh, incredible cast: Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sharon Stone, Ronnie Cox, Michael Ironside, Paul Verhoeven brings in uh, you know some of the same folks from RoboCop to do a lot of work on this one. Uh, and originally, I found this out just from looking at this. David Cronenberg was originally going to be directing this, and he's the one that came up with the idea of the mutants on Mars and Coato, which, if you know David Cronenberg, what a surprise that is. <laughs> uh, to me, this is almost a spiritual sequel to RoboCop. So many of the elements, the authoritarian uh, society, uh, the corporate evil, the, you know, it's stuff that Paul Verhoeven 
played around with a good bit, but just it's again we've talked about it on this show. It's another to me perfect movie. The pacing is incredible. Uh, the mystery is great, and there's a twist, and then there's a double twist, and at the end you're left like, well, wait, who is he really? Uh, I adore this movie. It's action packed, but it's got a great story underneath all the explosions and gore and craziness. Uh, wonderful cast, wonderful to look at. Everything about this movie is exciting and intense, and it's it's almost like it's the culmination of every piece of science fiction that we saw in the ten years that preceded its release. Um, with, with you know Arnold's big muscles rolled in just for fun. I just absolutely love this movie. And another little piece of trivia that I found out just while I was looking at this is Minority Report was originally going to be a direct sequel to Total Recall. Uh, It was going to star Arnold Schwarzenegger as Quaid reformed in Tom Cruise's role. And the Mars mutants were going to be the clairvoyants. But then it ended up in development hell for long enough that it, it went through director to director and Tom Cruise ended up in the role because uh, that's how Hollywood works, but I, I didn't know that. That's a crazy little piece of information. But th- this is... I've bought so many different editions of this movie. I don't know how many times I've watched it. I've eaten up the commentary, because I'll tell you right now, anytime you have the opportunity to listen to a commentary with Arnold Schwarzenegger's accent and Paul Verhoeven's accent combined, do it. It's excellent. Uh, but yeah, I just love this one. You guys, I, okay, Sean, have you seen Total Recall? I have seen Total Recall. <laughs> okay, whew. Do you love it? Yeah, yeah, it's, oh my god, it's so good. It's, I mean, it's right in my alley, too. I, I love all that cyberpunk stuff. Like, this is, I, when I realized it was based on a Philip K. Dick novel, I was like, oh, well, that's not surprising at all. Um, yeah, this is, this is absolute genius. I think it still holds up today. Um, everything about it uh, is so good, and it hits all those perfect. You know, cyberpunk wasn't a genre when this came out, but it hits all of those perfect story beats for being, you know, for what effectively would become that genre later on down the line. I think this is a, it's a great movie. That did they remake it? And I purged it from my memory. They or did, did they remake never? it, yes. and I, I well, okay, they did not remake this movie. They did a different adaptation of the ideas behind this movie and I gotcha. really I really enjoyed the remake. It's very different. I did, yeah, I think you can like both. Yes. I think so and I do. I definitely do. It's it's not, you know, tonally it's completely different, but it's a cool hard sci-fi film. I I really like it and I recommend it to people who maybe skipped over it because they couldn't imagine like why would you even bother redoing Total Recall? Yeah, anytime it's based on a book, you're you're just sort of ripe for someone to do another interpretation of it. I mean, how many different interpretations of I Am Legend are out there? Yeah. I have not seen the 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 um, the new version, but uh, now I think I will have to seek it out because it sounds like it's uh, a fun watch. Yeah, just go into it looking for a sci-fi flick. Like, don't go into it looking for this over-the-top craziness. Cool. Anybody else got some Total Recall thoughts to share? Well, you already touched on the three-titted alien. That was pretty much the talk of the town (laughs) in in junior high and high school for a while. (laughs) I like the -the over-the-top craziness. And then, I mean, that's what you 
you get with Paul Verhoeven, and that's what you want from him. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, that's his specialty. Like, if they ever put out a Paul Verhoeven box set, even though I'm going to end up with a copy of Showgirls, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> but putting all that aside, uh, he's done some good stuff. <laughs> Jesse Spano. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we need to do a some someday. We need to get everybody together, and we'll do a Showgirls commentary <laughs> with you guys. Uh, can Terry take my place? <laughs> yes, that's fine. <laughs> because you know, Terry Terry loves Saved by the Bell in nine hundred two one zero. And was briefly Parker Lewis, so I think you guys would be much better off. You would be much better off with my husband. Do you know they actually, re- like, the actual producers or the studio or whatever actually released the Showgirls DVD in, like, a drinking game gift set? Yes. Taking advantage of the whole, like, uh, cult popularity it achieved? Yes, yes. They've, they're, they're very aware of its reputation, and they've leaned into it, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. All right, you guys. Well, I think we have covered a lot of really great pop culture stuff from 1990. We could also get about four more episodes out of this year. Um, Before we wrap up, I want to go around, and out of everything that we've mentioned, I want everybody to sort of pick one either favorite or something that got brought up that you were like, oh, yeah, that's really good. That surprised me. I like that. Uh and, and what I'll do is I'll go through real quick uh, all of our topics. Uh, we had Flood. We had the Go Magazine cover with Matt Hoffman. We had Goodfellas, Twin Peaks, Ghost, uh, Tribe Called Quest, uh, People's Instinctive. Oh, my gosh. Why did they have to name this album? What? Chris, help me out. <laughs> we know what you're saying. People's Instinctive <laughs> Travels and Paths of Rhythm or whatever it is. Um, Edward Scissorhands, Marvel Toy Biz, 90210. World Click, Parker Lewis, and Total Recall. Uh, Out of all of those, the thing that we discussed that I'm kind of like, oh, I love that that came up. Uh, It's got to be like I'm on the same page, or I think everybody's on the same page, uh, is actually going to be World Click. That, to me, is just the fun thing that we could walk up to anybody on the street and be like, listen to Grooves in the Heart. They'll be like, okay, I'm down with that. Like, that's, to me, the the sort of ultimate thing from 1990 that we talked about. Um, Sean, out of that stuff, do you have one that's kind of like your, oh, that is 1990? Uh, I think I'm going to go Total Recall, um, which is not what I thought I would go with. I thought initially I would, like, 902 was going to stand out. But now that we've talked about Total Recall, I was like, oh, yeah, that's so, yeah, that's just kind of perfect. for That's so 90. It is. It is. Uh, Chris, what about you? Uh, I appreciate the fact that Sean brought up Parker Lewis Can't Lose because I think in the abundance of uh, teen comedies, teen soap operas, teen movies, and everything that uh, the market was flooded with in the mid to late 90s, I think that Parker Lewis kind of fell by the wayside and got forgotten by a lot of people. And I yeah. just don't think it comes up in, uh, in conversation as much anymore. So I'm glad that it got some love. Uh, even prior to the podcast, when he reached out to make sure that I was not adding it to my list, <laughs> so that he could add it to his list, I agree. It's it's a seminal show that does kind of get neglected in conversations about the era. Uh, and uh, Beth, what about you? Do you have sort of a, a one thing that just seems particularly like that's cool in 1990? Honestly, i I was going to go with uh, Parker Lewis as well, just because. I'd totally forgotten that that's 
what Terry looked like when I met him and <laughs> and I'd forgotten that that show was such a big deal at the time because I remember oh what was the other thing that guy was in the stand when Corin oh, Nemec right. showed up he in the was stand the bad guy he was yes. Harold and and when he was in there I was like oh I guess Parker Lewis can lose but <laughs> <laughs> but like I knew that he was that guy I just didn't remember anything else about the show. Yeah, I was so very now, disappointed that that he was cast as Harold because one, he wasn't a, a big fat guy. He was not evil either. Uh, yeah, but he ended up doing a pretty solid job, I think. Yeah, he he was okay, but he was just was not what I was picturing for that character. But now I do kind of want to go back and watch the show. Of course, I know if I go back and watch the show, I have to do so with Terry. And we're we're currently watching Mr. Show, so we got to get some we got to get through some stuff first. Well, you can get through that pretty quick. There's not a lot. Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, all right, well, I think we have uh, then declared that Parker Lewis Can't Lose is the grand champion of 1990. Uh, before we sign off, Sean, where can we find you online? What are you up to? Uh, I, I teach all day, every day. Um, this is what I do now. Uh, I'm, a, I'm Max Headroom. I'm a talking face on a Zoom camera. Uh, I still occasionally will post to social media at the Rad Ranger. Um I just got my 4K edition of Rad in, so I probably should share the love there because uh, available now from been, Vinegar Syndrome. Oh, it's so good, so so good. I wept. Um, yeah, so that's that's where you can find me most days. Um, other times, I'm just sitting in front of this microphone talking about programming. Well, I'm glad I could be in front of the microphone more. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, uh, where are you at? What are you up to? All right, so you can find me holding down the fort at figurestoycompany.com and wrestlingsuperstore.com. If you are a toy collector, please check us out. We've got a whole buttload of new figures in from the DC Comics retro line. New Super Friends figures are in. Uh, the first ever Flip Gordon from the Rising Stars of Wrestling, if you are a wrestling fan, that is out. A George Washington figure and a variant in our presidential series all available now at figurestoycompany.com, along with other characters from the DC Universe, Hanna-Barbera, The Three Stooges, and much more. You can also check out WrestlingSuperstore.com for the majority of our wrestling merchandise, which includes the Ring of Honor Wrestling, Legends of Professional Wrestling, and Rising Stars of Wrestling action figure lines. We are on all forms of social media. You can find us on Twitter at figurestoyco at W-R-E-S underscore Superstore. Just look up the company name on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow my personal page, which has work stuff, fun stuff, pop culture stuff, and everything in between over on Twitter at Zach Malibu. My, my personal favorite uh, Figures Toy Company new release is the variant Jim Cornette in uh, basically Christmas colors. Which has already sold out. Oh my gosh, Really? Because wow. uh, so Jim, uh, when we do the figures for Jim, Jim always gets a certain amount for his personal site because right. he will sign, personalize, and number them for you. Yes. So he gets them, and between the rush that we got on that figure coming out and Jim taking his own, uh, not only did we run out of stock very quickly, but the orders for Jim's personalized figures actually crashed his own site. <laughs> so that figure has been out for uh, nearly two weeks and is already going to be placed on back order. As a matter of fact, it was earlier today when I was talking to my boss and I was like, oh, hey, can you 
send some of the new figures for Zach and I, the Flip Gordon, the Cornet, and a couple other things. And he's like, well, let me check, because I think all the Cornets are gone. I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, not the original one, the variant. He goes, no, like, all the Cornets are gone. <laughs> so my fingers are crossed that I'm actually going to be receiving one, because this might be the first time a figure that I've made does oh not gosh. show up at my doorstep. Well, here's the answer. I was thinking about this, listening to Mr. Cornette earlier today talk about this figure. What you need to do is figure out a Jim Cornette Halloween variant. Uh-huh, orange and black. Oh, yeah. Now, granted, I don't believe he ever wore the color orange in his entire career, but I'd be all over a Jim Cornette Halloween variant. <laughs> Just, just like the seasonal versions of Jim Cornette. Yeah, that'd be great. I would love Like pastel that. colors for Easter. Yeah, Valentine's Day, a little pink, a little red. I, that, that's that's going to be the action figure wave of the future is, is the, uh, the, the, twel- the seasons of Cornette. The Cornette variant is going to rival the John Cena variant. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, let's not get carried away. Um, <laughs> Beth. What are you up to? Where can we find you online? When do we get a new episode of Execute Chapter 66? Well, when I am not reading Star Wars books, I am recording podcast about Star Wars books called Execute Chapter 66. And I will be sending you a new episode this week, Dave. So uh, you can expect to see that up sometime next week. I'm assuming if Dave can fit that into his busy schedule. It's ridiculous. I know. (laughs) It's a tough life. So, Execute Chapter 66 is a part of, or a division of, Needless Things Podcast. So, you can find us at NeedlessThingsPodcast.com. Awesome. You guys, thank you so much for coming on, talking about 1990. We will get back together a year from now, if the world still is around by then, (laughs) and talk about 1991. Or maybe just between now and then we'll do a sequel to this episode and talk about more <laughs> stuff from 1990 because my I've gosh. got four more albums and three more movies. <laughs> let me let me ask you guys this: What would you think about doing a best of the decade where we look at 80 to 90 and we do the same thing we do now? Like we each just pick like three things, but from the entire decade as kind Ooh. of a catch-all for stuff that we might have missed doing these episodes there might be smoke coming out of my ears if i have to pinpoint three things i mean i'm for it about. but it still hurts my head to think about for the for the listeners let us know what you think of that idea in the needless things podcast facebook group and uh please do tune in next week for another new episode of the needless things podcast you guys thanks a lot for sitting down and talking about 1990 thank you thank you And thank you, the listeners, for hanging out and enjoying the Needless Things podcast and for leaving us a review on iTunes or Spotify. or I don't know if you can even leave reviews on Spotify. I have no idea. Go somewhere and leave us a review. It is helpful. Share this episode. Tell your friends about us. Do whatever. You guys, my throat is so freaking dry. They have the we, we have a climate control thing at work that is not designed to control human climates. It's designed to control like machinery climates. So it's, it doesn't work basically like it keeps it livable, but it's, it doesn't fine tune. And somebody had set the humidity to 58%. 
which is very, very dry. And I've, I realized this is what's been going on. I've got hangnails, something terrible, to the point where uh, I, I wasn't comfortable filming unboxing videos because my hangnails look so bad. And now my throat's all dried up. But I went and looked at it yesterday. And I was like, 58, that seems really low. And then today, I, I, it really hit me that I think that thing usually sits at about 60 or even 65. And I think 60 is generally the humidity you're supposed to have in like your indoor area. Uh, so I, I've got a, and, and yeah, it's only 2% lower, but it makes a huge difference because let me just tell you the difference. If you've got 72 degrees and 73 degrees on the temperature on this thing, it's the difference between an oven and like a comfortable fall evening. It's ridiculous. Uh, please ignore everything I just said and go join the Needless Things Podcast Facebook group. Follow Needless Things Podcast on Instagram. Check out Audible Interlude, a G.I. Joe podcast, when it drops this Monday. Tell all your friends, I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things Podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vicks employee. Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh.